Welcome to Into the Well. I'm your host, Ryan Wilms. I started this show as a place to share my experiences and my journey towards living authentically and mindfully, and also to learn from those who are truly walking the path, healing themselves and inspiring others. By balancing the mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual, we can learn to live in harmony with ourselves and our environment. We'll be exploring different tools and modalities used to create sustainable well-being for a fulfilling life. So thank you for joining me. On this episode of the podcast, I get a chance to catch up with Dr. James Hart, who is the founder of BioCybernaut. In December, I spent a week doing the Alpha One training in Sedona at their headquarters and main training center. And it was a really, really profound experience. Um, Dr. Hart isn't always available for all the trainings, so I felt very lucky that he was surprisingly there and really enjoyed our conversation following up my experience there. So BioCybernaut does uh, neurofeedback training, helping you to learn about different brainwaves, how to work with them. And the process is really unique and interesting with a variety of sort of group therapy, self-inquiry meditation, um, and a lot of forgiveness and going inward. It was probably the closest thing I've had to an ayahuasca ceremony, like experience completely sober. The days were long and pretty energizing for the most part. Um, In our conversation, we get to talk about the ego, talk about his journey, the impact of time as the basis of fear in our sort of modern society, um, the brain and how it works, and many other things. It was a really fun conversation, and Dr. Hart is one of the most inspiring, impressive, incredible human beings that I've come across in my lifetime. I put him and Paul Check in a in a category of their own in terms of just an incredible depth and an insane breadth of experience, of exploration, of ability to help heal, grow expand, connect, and create. Um, Just really amazing. Um, It's been about a month now since my training. And definitely there's been a shift. You know, it's very subtle, but um, I'm excited to see what continues to unfold. But for now, I hope you enjoy the conversation with Dr. James Hart from BioCybernaut. Thanks. All right, Dr. Hart, uh, thank you so much for, for the time and for coming on the, on the podcast. Um, got to spend a week with you about three weeks ago now in Sedona at the BioCybernaut Institute, and it was really an incredible experience. Um, you know, I went in really not knowing what to expect, but uh, and not expecting you to be there as well. So it was just uh, a lot yeah. of pleasant surprises all the way around. <laughs> Well, surprises sometimes can be uh, quite delightful. It's a delight to be with you, mm-hmm. and to participate in your podcast. Thank you. So, I think you know that you've been on some other podcasts and you share, you know, the story of finding neurofeedback and whatnot. But I think for my listeners as well, it'd be great just for a little bit of context and a brief history. Maybe you can tell the story once more about when you first uh, kind of found out about neurofeedback and. How long ago that was? Well, I was a physics major at Carnegie Institute of Technology, 
And I had become uh, good friends with a graduate student in phenomenological psychology at Duquesne University, which was also in Pittsburgh. And we were reading things like Father Pierre Tay Chardin's um, Phenomenon of Man. And uh, I was entranced by all of this amazing philosophical uh, writing and speculation. But the scientist in me was wondering, well, you know, what's measurable here? I mean, these words, they're so inspiring and, and, and you know, soaring and, and, you know, uplifting, but where's the science? And so uh, in the fall semester of my senior year uh, in physics, I came out of the student union after lunch to be counted by a very large hand-painted sign in which every letter was a slightly different color. And the sign said, Dr. Joe Camilla will talk on brainwaves and consciousness. And it gave a time that was, oh, my God, that's just 10 minutes away. The building was right over here, Margaret Morrison College. And I did not have a class that hour. So, of course, I went. Uh, the other people there were the students of a painting and design teacher. I was the only one from the engineering college. Uh, and uh, Dr. Camilla had been uh, there to visit uh, this woman uh, on one of his trips from Washington, his funding source to San Francisco, UCSF, where his lab was. And so he gave a talk to her students and me. And so I, uh, I was astonished to know that such a technology existed, measuring electrical activity in the brain. Wow. And so that was my senior year. And I spent every spare minute in the library reading everything I could find on brainwaves. Uh, the history went back to 1908, when an Austrian psychiatrist who'd been scripted for uh, a war in the Crimea against the Muslims by the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, his horse was shot, fell on him. He spent uh, long months in a military hospital recovering. And when he went back to Vienna to tell his story to his family, his sister interrupted him, took him to her bedroom, showed him her diary, and in it was an exact description of what had happened to him. That caused him to suddenly believe in telepathy or ESP or something like that. And so he went searching for the cause. Now, at the time, uh, scientists like Volta in France were experimenting with primitive batteries that they would attach to frog legs and they would jump. And so he went looking for electrical waves in the brain. Nobody had ever looked for them before. The equipment was very primitive. And so the first waves that he found, because they were first, he called alpha waves. They're mm -hmm. not the biggest. Uh, they're, I mean, they're not the fastest or the slowest, but they are the largest in amplitude. So they were the first to be discovered with this primitive uh, technology. And so Dr. Uh, Hans Berger kept this a secret for 10 years while he researched it because he thought it was a basis of ESP, which in a way it is. Um, but he couldn't demonstrate that with his primitive technology. And I might jump ahead or sideways mm -hmm. that uh, in 1983, I had two Army intelligence officers come to me for two weeks of training. They had been alerted to my existence by members of the San Francisco police. I had trained the chief of police, uh, Thomas Cahill, uh, and it kind of rippled throughout the police. Department. So one of the police officers was at a seminar that these military intelligence officers were attending. They heard about me. And so they came and did two weeks of training. The first was their Alpha One, which they did in separate chambers. 
And then their second week, they were in the same chamber doing what we call shared feedback. Now, I had cautioned them that they might well have telepathic experiences. And uh, because of this, they wouldn't let me do shared feedback with them because they had high security clearances and I had none. And so the net of this was that they did have telepathic experiences. And if you want to read about it, you can get uh, one of them rose to the rank of colonel in Army Intelligence, uh, Colonel John B. Alexander. And he wrote a book called The Warrior's Edge, which although it's out of print, you can sometimes find it on Amazon uh, in a used uh, condition. And he dedicated a full chapter to their two weeks at BioCybernaut. And he confirmed, and this is now with the imprimatur of U.S. Army Intelligence, that there were telepathic experiences that occurred between the two of them when they were in my chamber doing what we call shared feedback. And so uh, Dr. Berger was correct, but again, he didn't have the appropriate advanced technology to demonstrate that. And so uh, I, I filled my brain. I had this huge pile of Xerox. I spent a lot of nickels at the library between <laughs> Xeroxing all these articles. And I had read every one three times before I graduated in June uh, with a bachelor's degree in physics. First thing I did was I hopped on my Triumph motorcycle um, and uh, rode up into Canada, across the continent, and down I-5 to San Francisco, where I showed up at Joe Camilla's door, and uh, he, we had been in correspondence this whole time, and I volunteered as a research subject. It was uh, in a, a, a sort of a, a rundown house at the edge of campus, um, but it, he had a huge PDP-15 mini-computer, very advanced for the time. It completely filled a bedroom in the house, and a closet off the bedroom was the neurofeedback chamber. It was lined with soundproof tile, and it had uh, one torn speaker, a big 10, 12-inch speaker with a rip in it, sitting on an orange crate in the corner of the closet. And on a small table was a three-digit score with Nixie tubes. These were uh, uh, vacuum tubes that had 10 filaments in, and depending on which pins you powered, the zero would glow or the one would glow or the seven would glow. And that was the way back then that we could, this was pre-LED. This was one way that we could have uh, illuminated digital scores. And so I had my first neurofeedback session and it was beyond phenomenal. It was the most fascinating thing I had ever done. And so I went back the next day for more and next day for more. And I went back on the fourth day wanting more, but they weren't doing any studies. However, I'd become friends with uh, Dr. Camille's San Francisco girlfriend, Joanne Gardner, who subsequently became his wife. And I went to Joanne's office. I said, uh, would you please get me downstairs, put a few electrodes on me and plug me in so I could play? And she goes, oh, sure. And so she does this. And I'm in the closet. I know when newer feedback starts. She goes upstairs, uh, forgets I'm there, gets involved in her work. I'm not anybody's data. Then lunch comes. And with nine other members of the lab, they go out for a 12-course Chinese lunch. And in course number 11, she remembers, she goes, oh, my God. And so they all rush out of the restaurant, pile into the camper bus, and race across town, run into the building, rip open the door of the chamber, and interrupt the late stages of a most incredible adventure, without which you and I would not be talking here, and there would be no biocybernaut. For a fundamentalist physics major, this was pretty wild. It started out without a body experience. And then I'm cruising around the universe, uh, encountering discorporate beings, uh, 
uh, having uh, 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 you know ego disintegration experiences, and um, finding that when even the consciousness necessary to run my breathing was holding me down from the higher states of consciousness. Mm. As a kid, I'd been a long distance underwater swimmer. And so I knew how to charge my blood with a lot of oxygen and I would do that hyperventilation. And then I would just sit very still for five uh, or more minutes, just, you know, cruising Pluto or, you know, beyond. Uh, uh, And, uh, it was it was the most exquisitely beautiful experience that I've ever had in my life. There was uh, a moment where I had an encounter with the unmanifest, uh, the source of all that is that comes into being, the unmanifest universe and the manifest universe, and uh, that profoundly transformed me and uh, enabled me uh, to undertake this amazing work. Uh, the first thing I had to do was build my technology. Uh, I, the existing technology, I had a physics degree, so I could evaluate filters and know, oh my God, these filters, I mean, the, the, the existing alpha filters would allow in uh, delta and theta from both sides. A uh, filter ideally should look like a table mesa, flat across the filter band, which in alpha is 8 to 13 cycles per second, and then totally steep sides where it completely excludes any, excludes any outband signal. So no theta can come into the alpha and no beta can come into the alpha. You just get pure alpha and pure other things. So I exper- explored a number of different technologies. One was switch capacitors, which at the time would have met my, my needs, but it required cryogenic cooling. And, uh, on a graduate student's um, budget, that was out of the question. So I eventually developed Cower elliptical filters with uh, 400 dB per octave roll-off in the passband, which means they go like this, and uh, only a third of a dB ripple in the passband. So then uh, I had uh, I had my first system, but then microprocessors came along, and so. I used the Motorola 6800 and a chipset that went with it, UARTs and other things, um, to build the world's first microcomputerized uh, instrument for doing brainwave feedback and uh, analysis. And I mated this most advanced filters on the planet with this microprocessor. And that was my ticket not only to go to India several times to study brainwaves on the gurus, but it also led to creation of data that led to a publication in science demonstrating that my alpha feedback would reduce both trait and state anxiety in a group of high anxiety people. But it also led to a large federal grant, a three-year grant from the National Institute of Mental Health that was entitled Anxiety and Aging intervention with EEG alpha feedback, because in addition to reducing anxiety, learned increases in alpha also reverse aging in the brain. And so most people don't know this, but uh, once hardening of the arteries sets in, it's called atherosclerosis, which can happen as early as someone's 20s, depending on the genetic diet, lifestyle, things like that. Once that happens, their alpha waves start to slow. And they slow at a rate of eight-tenths of a hertz for every 10 years of life. Now, alpha is 8 to 13. Most people center around 10 hertz. And so it's only a couple of decades before the alpha falls off the lower end. People don't have alpha anymore. And it's down in theta. Well, this causes the people to enter senescence or senility. 
and most soon die uh, shortly thereafter. And so with my technology, I was able to train people to reverse this important aspect of aging in the brain. And so that's kind of like the founder story. Yeah. Being for Jokamia's chamber. Well, I feel like I have a bunch of follow-up questions now. So that study you did on anxiety, one of the first bigger studies, when would that have been? Um, well, it, uh, I, I, I had the data analyzed uh, in 1973, okay. uh, and I submitted it to Science Magazine. And the very interesting story that you should ask that. Okay. In 1973, there was a paper published in Science by Ornan Paskowitz saying that, oh, no, alpha doesn't uh, reduce anxiety. Uh, I knew that was wrong because I could see it in my own data. And even Hans Berger, in his initial work uh, in 1908 to 1918, when he first published, he found that high-anxiety people had lower alpha. So what, and I'll give you a brief analysis of what was wrong with the Ornan Paskowitz study. First of all, they asked ordinary people to volunteer for a very painful electric shock experiment. Immediately, 60% of the potential volunteers withdrew. So that would be all the high anxiety, the middle anxiety, and the normal anxiety, leaving only an intrepid group of very low anxiety, brave fools, basically, to volunteer for this very painful electric shock experiment. So then they had them lie down, uh, and they taped big electrodes to their feet and indicated this is how they might be given the painful electric shock. And while they're lying down, there was a light on the uh, by the ceiling that a red light, if it was on, that meant they would be in shock jeopardy. And if the light was off, that means there was no chance of being shocked. And so we know this is low anxiety people because all the high anxiety people left. It was a painful electric shock experiment. And then what they did with these people lying down, they found that the alpha was slightly higher when the red light was on. Well, it turns out, and Ornan Paskowitz didn't know this, but earlier in 1959, a psychophysiologist named Malmo had discovered the relationship between alpha and arousal was an inverted U-shaped curve. So alpha is low if you're sleepy. It's also low if you're anxious. And so when these basically lying down sleepy people were put in shock jeopardy by the light being on, their arousal would come up and that would raise their alpha. And so we know they're low anxiety people. They're not worried about being electrically shocked. They're lying down. And so Orn and Paskowitz never even asked the people if they were anxious or not. They just assumed when the red light was on that they would be anxious. But in fact, they were lying down when the, and then when the light came on, they were a little bit more awake and that was the alpha. So that was the bogus study that I was going up against. Well, the way Science Magazine works, when you submit an article, if there's somebody else that you're challenging, they send your paper to that person for review. Well, Art Norn shot it down. Well, you should really do a little more analysis before you go and tell the whole world about your findings. So I did all the additional analysis and so on that he had requested. The results were stronger. I sent it back in for a second review. Again, Martin Norn was the reviewer and he shot it down. So I had to play the politics of science. Uh, Enoch Calloway was the research director at Langley Porter Neuropsychiatric Institute, part of UCSF, where I was uh, at that time a, uh, a, a graduate student. And so um, he, uh, Enoch Calloway said, well, uh, next week, uh, the, uh, the psychophysiology conference is going to meet in San Diego and Martin Orn is going to go there. I will introduce you. 
So Martin Orne was a big towering figure and Notch Calloway introduced me, he was an ex-Navy man. And we started talking. Well, immediately I was able to give Martin Orne all the critiques that I just gave you about what was wrong with his study. And mm. he's like, and then he proceeded to ask me questions and he realized I knew a whole lot more about EEG and particularly alpha EEG than he did. So he invited me to come to his lab in Philadelphia, offering me a job. So I went back there and spoke and presented for several days. He offered me the job on the condition that I could not publish any results without his approval, which means he could censor my paper and mm. not have it that he had been caught with his methodological pants down. Okay. So I, uh, the job he offered me was eight times more money than I was getting as a, as a pre-doc. Uh, but I turned it down and that resubmitted my paper. And this time Martin had the uh, generosity and the civility to not review the paper, he passed it on to David Paskowitz, who was his co-author on his 1973 paper. And David Paskowitz went, yes, of course you should publish this. And so it was published in 1978, five years after wow. submitted the results uh, to science. And that publication in science then triggered a review of my federal grant application and Martin Orn himself headed the site review team, and he came out to California, saw the lab. I showed him my polygraphs of, you know, like I was working with people who were, uh, uh, in some cases, elderly. And uh, he looked at the data, and he goes, wow, this is amazing. Uh, and so he caused the grant to be funded. So I owe a debt of gratitude to Martin Orn because he not only stepped aside so David Paskowitz, his co-author, could review and approve my paper. But then Martin himself came and approved the large federal grant. And then I worked with women who were from 60 well up into their 80s. And it was like they had found the fountain of youth. There was one woman who was 74, a widow. And after her training, she took a 45-year-old man as her lover who pronounced her both sexually and spiritually fulfilling. We had women in their late 70s and 80s who had never graduated high school, who got GEDs, they went to college, they got degrees, they got advanced degrees, some of them started businesses. It was it was phenomenal. I had an 80-year-old lady want to go for a ride on my motorcycle. <laughs> That's very cool. She, she, she did it side saddle in a very ladylike way. <laughs> so a couple <laughs> other pieces from your sort of story there early on. One, uh, you mentioned that you were a swimmer growing up. And you knew how to do breath work that would sort of create some of this experience. So you're a little bit familiar with that. And it sounded a little bit like sort of like the Wim Hof style of breathing. I don't know if you're familiar mm. with that, but is that, a, is that that same sort of process? And what does that do to the well, brain? Well, see, I began with trying to swim. I don't know, I'm like sixth grade, something like And I had daily access to the pool at the college because my dad was a college teacher. This was in Conway, Arkansas. I did sixth and seventh grade there. And after school, every day I'd go to the college pool. And the first thing I would do is I would swim across the pool without taking a breath. Then I'd do two times across the pool, over and back, without taking a breath. Then I'd do three times across. Then I would do the length of the pool. Then I would do two times the length. Then I would do three times the length, my, my blood with lots of oxygen. And then to go a very, very, very long time uh, swimming underwater. Now, I've subsequently learned that this is one of the few things that parents can do to increase the IQ of their children. There is in mammals something called the diving reflex. And if a mammal is thrown into the water, 
automatically the blood flow to the lower body is shut off at the benefit of increased blood flow to the brain. Because obviously, if you go unconscious, uh, you know, you're drowned. And so uh, by particularly as a child, by doing long distance underwater swimming, it could be, you know, breath holding that you're not underwater, but children have more motivation to hold their breath <laughs> if they reach the edge of the pool. Um, and so what it causes is a sustained increase in the diameter of the blood vessels that feed the brain. Okay. Of course, raises IQ. Interesting. And yes. how do, does that work similarly for an adult, if, if I'm going to start doing that now? Uh, yes, it does. But doing it as a child means that you basically set the blood vessels. You'd have to basically keep doing it. Where mm -hmm. if you do a child, you get a, an increase that is uh, sustainable, even without continued practice. Right. But yes, it's very helpful for adults. And in fact, uh, I did uh, seven years of the Yogananda uh, meditation program. I was initiated after five years by Swami Kriyananda, one of uh, Yogananda's direct disciples. And Yogananda says, uh, before any meditation, you must do these two breathing exercises. And one of them is a three-phase inhale to a count, hold to that count, and exhale to that count. And uh, I got up, and then the other one is, is different, but this initial breathing exercise, I got to the point that I was doing one breath per two minutes. So it was 40 seconds for the inhale, 40 seconds for the hold, and 40 seconds for the exhale. And so even though I was relatively sedentary doing my work, uh, occasionally I would go hiking with experienced hikers, and I, I would hike rings around them because I had the breath power. Uh, even though, you know, I didn't necessarily have the muscle stamina of, uh, you know, repeated physical exercise. So, yes, it's very important to do these breathing exercises. I really believe in it. And one of the things I want to do in the future is to do uh, brainwave feedback with enriched oxygen atmospheres. That mm. would allow people to breathe less often and thus more able to go more fully and for longer periods of time out of body. Right. Oh, that's very cool. So the other thing that I thought was interesting is you had done all this reading and research before you went out to Dr. Kamiya's lab and, and volunteered there. So I wonder, you know, going in even at that, that early stage, your idea of what was possible with these brainwave states, it seems like it had already sort of been expanded beyond what most people are even aware of now. Well, most of what I had read at that time, because the brainwave feedback field was utterly raw, I mean, Joe Camita only discovered the possibility of humans voluntarily controlling their alpha waves in 1962, April of 1962. He reported this at the Western Psychological Association meeting in San Francisco. And so, you know, when I got there, um, you know, that was only five years earlier. And so mm -hmm. brainwave feedback was uh, not even a speck on, you know, on the wall. Uh, of the scientific community. And so none of the papers that I had read had anything to do with brainwave feedback. It was all what I called the natural reactivity of alpha. Uh, for, well, for example, like Bloch's law. If you put somebody in a dark room and you're measuring their alpha they, and they're looking at the screen, if you have a square of light, say two, four inches on a side, uh, that will block the alpha to a measurable degree. Now, if you make it uh, twice as bright, it'll block the alpha more. If you make it half as bright, it'll block the alpha more. But instead of uh, four uh, square inches, if you cut it down to two square inches, but double the intensity, it has the same alpha blocking effect. So mm. the 
product of the area times the luminance is what controls how much alpha blocking there is. So there was some science, but none of the science had anything to do with brainwave feedback. It was all what how alpha responded to stimuli in the environment. For example, the smell of lavender increases alpha, the smell of musk decreases it. Um, and so uh, when I went to, later to design equipment, I had a knowledge base that none of the other engineers designing alpha feedback equipment had because I knew the physiology of what made alpha work and what didn't. For mm-hmm. example, some of the earlier would have feedback equipment would have a light that got brighter when you make more alpha. Well, it turns out that light abolishes alpha and the brighter the light, the more it abolishes alpha. So this is giving people negative feedback. It's like trying to teach a child to smile by slapping it on the face every time it smiles. The feedback suppresses the response rather than encouraging it. Or even watching a meter go up and down like that is, again, having to pay visual attention. So there was a lot of stupidity and ignorance in a lot of the brainwave feedback equipment that was designed, and none of it was designed from the knowledge base that I had, which Mm. was... Uh, you know, a 50-year history of studies of, about the psychophysiology, the natural reactivity of alpha. Uh, yeah, that's very interesting to come at it with that. So so as I mentioned, I was in Sedona at the training in mid-December. And going into it, I didn't really know what it was going to be. I knew it was going to be seven days, long hours, fairly <laughs> sort of intensive work. Yeah. And you know, there a lot of it is in a group setting and a decent amount is also sort of in isolation in the chambers. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of what I can only describe as like a self-guided inquiry meditation. So mm-hmm. I'm curious, you know, fast forwarding to today from, you know, what you were just chatting about, what is BioCybernaut and how would you describe Alpha One training? Oh, wonderful question. Well, there's many levels of depth can be applied. The simplest form is a biocybernaut is to inner space what an astronaut is to outer space. The Greek suffix not means somebody who goes on an adventure. Bio, of course, refers to the biology, biological beings we are. And cyber, which comes from an ancient word cipher, which means to calculate or to uh, do arithmetic, the cyber Natic or cybernautic technology involves computers calculating machinery in order to allow people with who are biological beings to go on this inner adventure. Mm. So a biocybernaut is to inner space what an astronaut is to outer space. Now, the Alpha One training, it's like Brainwaves 101. I've taken everything that I've learned in many decades of research, both into the natural reactivity of alpha and also into the designing of equipment and technology to optimize people's abilities, as well as uh, uh, training protocols. I've, I've had tens of thousands of sessions with people. Uh, and uh, along the way, uh, uh, I implemented uh, a forgiveness protocol, which uh, is the distillation of forgiveness methods that uh, thousands of people attempted. And so it's distilled down to the best of the best. And uh, it's an extremely powerful uh, technique because it turns out that forgiveness only works, no matter who you are, forgiveness only works under conditions of rising alpha. If your alpha is stable or falling, don't bother trying to forgive because you're wasting your time. It's not going to work. And so I've set up the technology in such a way that you know when your alpha is rising. 
when your scores come up every two minutes, if you've gone up in enhancement, then the colors of the different numerical scores will be blue, meaning you went up, or green, meaning you went up so far you set a new high on that channel for this day. And so once you get to the point where your alpha is rising, you're doing forgiveness, you know it's working. You have personally experienced that. And then when all uh, when most of the scores turn white, meaning they drop, that's when you go ask your flawless beings, your judges, if you've done all the forgiveness on this charge for this person that you can do for now. And depending on the guidance, you either go back and do more forgiveness on this charge, or you go ask, you do, you know, I, I love you, and then so, or then you go on to the next forgiveness. There's also other techniques like high tech decision making and inquiries uh, and worst case scenarios and scary movie played backward to address different uh, 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 things like you know, fears or making important choices based on the guidance of your higher self as it is expressed through your alpha in the high-tech decision-making uh, technique. Yeah. So, you know, it's there's the techniques that you use in the chamber as someone who's going in to go on this inner exploration. And then there's obviously the technology that you've developed. Over these last 40 years or so, have those been sort of a parallel evolution or have there been any significant um, things that you've discovered that have really like propelled this work forward? Well, there's many, many discoveries and ongoingly uh, and uh, it propels the work both forward and upward and in other directions like inward. Uh, we have 24 levels of the alpha training. Each one of them is a seven day program. We have 24 levels of the advanced theta trainings. And we have 18 levels of the even more advanced Delta trainings. And the Delta trainings are by invitation only because they confer powers or Siddhis. Uh, and we don't want to create any Darth Vader's. So we want to make sure that people have done enough ethical cleansing for deep forgiveness work uh, to be entrusted with powers to alter the quantum mechanical probability energy density function of the local universe which is how, as a physicist, a physicist, I would describe making a change in phenomenal reality. Mm -hmm. Well, my next question, which perfectly is led into by what you're just saying, would be if you could possibly um, briefly explain the different brainwave states, like beta, alpha, delta, and theta, and just sort of what those different things sort of allow you access to or what might be going on in those different states. Well, the primary brainwave states that most neurologists know about are delta, which is zero to four, theta, which is four to seven. Then there's a gap from seven to eight. Uh, we call it Schumann. Most people don't know about it. And then from eight to 13 is alpha, from 13 to possibly 25 or 40 is beta, and from there on up is uh, gamma. And um, gamma totally overlaps with the muscle spectrum. So the only way to make accurate measurements of gamma which, by the way, is done, I think, in Wisconsin at the lab of Richard J. Davidson. He plasters dozens of muscle-detecting electrodes all over the cheeks and chin and lips and neck and forehead to measure muscle activity. And if there's any muscle activity detected by any one of those dozens of muscle electrodes, he throws out the brainwaves because muscles produce uh, gamma brainwaves and higher frequencies. And they do so at an amplitude a thousand to ten thousand times bigger than the actual brain gamma, which is a tiny brainwave normally. And so 
uh, Richard Davidson was part of a group at Harvard that conducted a study of gamma waves where they took uh, Buddhist meditators, eight of them, who had between 10,000 hours and 50,000 hours of practice of the Buddhist compassion meditation. And in this group, and wearing all of these muscle-detecting electrodes so they could throw out any of the brainwave, so-called brainwaves, that were, in fact, contaminated by muscle, they found the biggest gamma that had ever been seen in the intact uh, human brain. Now, that's tiny, tiny, biggest gamma is tiny, tiny, compared to even normal alpha. But that was a very interesting study. It makes gamma a topic for some very interesting research. Now, beta is sort of associated with a focused mind. Uh, and in my federal grant, uh, I actually had, was required. Uh, well, what they wanted me to do as a condition of giving me the grant was to do sham feedback, where I would take half of the people and I would play recordings of other people's feedback sounds into their chamber. It wouldn't be real. They wanted this as a way to ascertain the results were in fact being produced by the alpha feedback. And I said to them, this absolutely won't work. Uh, people will, within five minutes, discover that it's a sham because all they have to do is open their eyes. And if the music continues, they will know that it's not them. It's the recording that you're playing into the room. So this won't work. They said, well, can you suggest something that would work? So I go, hmm, let me see. I said, well, here, I could do this. I could do three days of baselines before people start the uh, feedback to calculate the alpha-beta ratio. Alpha is you know, 10, 15, 20 times bigger than beta in most cases. And then I would have people do uh, half of the training would be alpha feedback, and then half of it would uh, additional days would be beta feedback. And so the beta waves would be scaled up by some multiplier that was for that person, their alpha beta ratio. So the tones would be equally as loud and the scores would be in the same range. And so they approved of that. So when I ran the federal grant, uh, half the people started on alpha feedback. And then after five days were switched to beta feedback and the other group was the other way around. Well, because the study was double blind, the gold standard of scientific research, I could not even interact with the people, the research subjects. But I would listen through a closed door to the interviews. And on the day where they switched, like a person who had been doing alpha, and then on that day they switched to beta, uh, they would say, oh, my God, I lost my way today. I knew what I was doing. It was so wonderful. But today nothing worked. And that was when they were switched to beta. Now, we gave mood scales before and after every session. And what I found when people were doing the beta feedback, that their anxiety went up, their anger went up, their hostility went up. Uh, and so it was the opposite when they were doing alpha. So I would strongly discourage people from doing any alpha training unless you want to be more irritable and crabby and angry. And so that's what happens when your beta increases. Uh, Whereas alpha, which is 8 to 13 cycles per second, alpha is a very interesting state. It's a gateway state uh, between high performance, the zone kind of thing, and profound altered states of consciousness. Now, theta, which is 4 to 7, um, it, it's, it's, it's very deep. Uh, and alpha is pretty much there, you know, at bigger or smaller amplitudes pretty much all the time for everybody. So if you're doing alpha feedback 
you've got something to work with. The tones might be quiet, the scores might be low, but there's something going on. With theta, it's binary. It's like you either have theta or you don't. And this is why we make alpha one a precondition for doing any theta training, because in the course of your alpha training, theta will increase along with, I mean, this was found in uh, advanced and meditators. We can go sideways here for a minute. In 1966, Kasumatsu and Harai, two pillars of the Japanese scientific community, wanted to study the brainwaves of Zen meditation. So they approached Zen masters in both of the main Zen traditions, Soto and Rinzai. Like Christianity has Protestant and Catholic. It's kind of like a metaphor for the Soto Zen and the Rinzai Zen. And so the Zen master said yes. So further, Kasumatsu and Harai requested that the Zen masters rate the level of spiritual development for each one of their monks, which they did, beginner, intermediate, and advanced. Then they put electrodes on them and measured their meditation. In the advanced Zen, and nobody was rated advanced who had less than 21 years, and some had 40 years. So 21 to 40 years is advanced Zen. Alpha increased at the back of the head, spread forward on the head. And then in the advanced, it did two things. The brainwaves did two things that they never saw in the intermediate or the beginner, which was the frequency of the alpha slowed a little bit, and theta waves were emitted from the frontal locations. Well, this exact pattern is what happens in people's alpha-1 training. And I actually published a paper back in 1993 demonstrating this, that that advanced Zen, 21 to 40 years of Zen, can be attained by 21 to 40 years in Japan in a very disciplined lifestyle, or you can get it in seven days at BioCyberNode. <laughs> Same path of brainwave changes. We know that technology speeds things up. And so theta does emerge uh, in advanced end, and it also emerges in the, uh, the uh, BioCyberNode alpha train. And so uh, alpha is good for so many things. I've done uh, studies that were published in peer-reviewed journals, some of the medical journals, that increases of alpha reduce anxiety. But they also reduce other kinds of psychopathology, paranoia, schizophrenia, psychasthenia, uh, depression, um, hypogondriasis, um, and uh, these have also been subject to published papers. I actually did one paper. We, when I was in Canada, uh, I had a, a philanthropist who put up $6 million to train people from his company, and he said when they came back that uh, that if they he said the ROI on a biosubrant train is a hundred. So if he was paying twenty thousand dollars for somebody to come for training, what employee he got back he felt was worth two million dollars to the company. He also funded the training for over two hundred Canadian Aboriginals, many of whom were living in the bush without running water and electricity, and profoundly changed their lives. Uh, he provided everything, airfare, taxi, uh, lodging, training fee. Uh, and so uh, they, these people are very oppressed. There was racism to an extraordinary degree. Uh, most damaging, I think, was the residential school system, which continued in some parts of Canada until 1989, where children were ripped away from their parents or their grandparents and put 12 months a year in these schools. The schools had placards that said, kill the Indian to save the man. Now, what they meant was kill the Indian culture to save the person for becoming a white culture person. Uh, But in fact, uh, uh, Georgina Lightning, an Aboriginal filmmaker, documented that over 50% of the Aboriginal children sent to these residential schools died there. 
often after horrific abuse, sexual abuse by the priests and the nuns, uh, but also by the older children who themselves were being abused. And so these people are traumatized to a degree that excludes many returning war veterans. And so uh, the training that I provided to them was so powerful that uh, at one point I was invited to speak at the United Nations in Geneva uh, about the about the work. And I also published a paper uh, in a, a peer-reviewed medical journal. I think it was called Advances in Mind-Body Medicine. Uh, which was entitled Reductions in Psychopathology in a Cohort of Male and Female Canadian Aboriginals. So the scholarship sponsor was so pleased with that work that he asked me to do more. He he was very, had his ear to the ground very much in the reservations, which are called reserves there. And he said information was coming to him that suggested that people were benefiting who simply interacted with the biocybernetic trainees. They'd never even gone through the training themselves, but they were demonstrating uh, real benefits just by interacting. You know, I coined a word for this. Higher consciousness is protagious, not contagious, because that implies a negative, but higher consciousness is protagious. So he asked me to design a study to prove this. So I sat down, sharpened my pencil, and used my experimental design. I came up with a study. He said, ah, that's too expensive. You have to find a cheaper way to do it. So what I did was I came up with a study where at six months after their graduation from their Alpha One training, we would send them a survey on uh, SurveyMonkey. They could fill it out, hundreds of questions. Um, And uh, with their permission, we also sent the survey to their family members, to their friendship networks, and for those that had jobs, to their co-workers. And the results that came back were absolutely staggering. They were reviewed by psychologists and psychiatrists and anthropologists and ethnologists, and all of them concluded that these were phenomenal benefits that were being observed in the people who simply interacted with people who had done the training. So, yes, in fact, the alpha training is protagious. Higher consciousness is protagious. And to give you an idea of the wide-ranging benefits, after the training – uh, with no instructions from us, uh, the people who had done the training were eating uh, about the same amount of meats and grains. They were eating less sweets and fast foods. They were eating more fresh fruits and vegetables. And they were wearing smaller clothing sizes. So you can get an idea of how thoroughly I went after everything in their lifestyle. And they were also having fewer fights and arguments with family members, and they were being perceived as being a better grandson or a better father. It was it was absolutely mind-boggling. And I think on the BioCybernet website, you can access this paper. I think it's called Social and Economic Benefits uh, Beyond Those Who've Done the Training, something like that. And so that was published uh, uh, in a, a peer-reviewed journal. And so the, the range of benefits is enormous. Now, earlier I was going to talk about some of the uh, benefits we've seen in published studies. The IQ boost from this Alpha One training uh, averages 11.7 points. And this is stable for at least a year out, which is as far as we've looked. Now, in November 21 and uh, November 21 and 22 last year, we hosted the Global Consciousness Summit 1.0. And uh, if you go to the website, or the website of the nonprofit that we did this with, the Integrated Mind Research Institute, you can make a donation to the nonprofit and have access to the entire archive of all the people who spoke at the Global Consciousness Summit 1.0. And they include uh, Jack Canfield, 
the creator of the Transformational Leadership Council, of which I'm a member, uh, Tony Robbins, who's done the Alpha Training, who said, it's one of the most powerful experiences of my life, um, and Prince Alfred von Liechtenstein, uh, and uh, a host, and, and Reverend Michael Beckwith of Agape, who's done a number of, uh, of Alpha Trainings, uh, as well as a, a, a quite a wide range. Uh, Her Holiness Sai Ma, uh, Lakshmi Devi, who's the first female uh, uh, Yagda Guru in 5,000 years. She was a speaker. And so you can have access to this amazing treasure chest of, uh, of, of speakers on the topic of consciousness that is available. Well, I also did the IQ study there. Both of the main dimensions of IQ, the the verbal and the mathematical IQ, both of these increased significantly as a result of this training. And then there was a study with Stanford Research Institute scientists where we demonstrated an increase in creativity that averaged 50%. I mean, most artists, if they could have a 5 or 10% increase in creativity, they would quadruple their income and you know increase their joy and happiness by 100 times. Well, the average increase in creativity of, an, of a bio-cybernet alpha-1 training is 50%. Also, there are big increases in emotional intelligence, which many scientists say is the master skill for success. It's more important than IQ by maybe um, five or six times more important than IQ. And so there have also been studies um, of brainwaves, not feedback studies, of athletes. Um, and um, the, the, you can't measure brainwaves when an athlete is moving. But there are some sports in which the athlete is motionless before uh, the shot, and that would be marksmanship, a bow, bow and arrow, uh, archery or a pistol or rifle marksman, or a basketball player at free throw, or a golfer before they putt. And in all of these sports, athletes have been measured for their brainwaves before they're shot. And if there's a big burst of alpha just before the shot, it's going to be one of their best shots. And so we know that alpha waves are importantly linked and maybe even metaphysically linked to performance. Let's say you are you're learning archery, you're holding a bow, you have a Zen archery teacher, and of course you have to have the strength to pull the bow, but then your Zen archery coach says, now, don't release the arrow until you feel that you and the arrow and the target are one. When you have this feeling of oneness, guess what? A big alpha shows up in your head. You let the arrow go then and bullseye. And so... Uh, it's related to physical performance as well as mental performance. IQ, uh, um, learning tasks are easier in a high alpha state. So there's a wide range of benefits that come from learning to increase your alpha wave. So you mentioned that there, I can't remember now, is it 24 alpha trainings? Yes. So, you know, you mentioned alpha one being sort of the 101 of brainwaves, and that's the one I had just done. And that's the one that no matter who comes in, they have to start with yeah. alpha one. Yeah. What is what would somebody potentially expect in terms of a progression of experience moving through, you know, half a dozen alpha trainings? Well, we actually have what we call the Diamond Dozen Club, where people prepay for 12 trainings and they get a 20% discount. And typically what people in the Diamond Dozen Club do is they do Alpha 1 through 6, and then they do Theta 1 through 6. Although there have been some who've demonstrated such a profound degree of ethical purity that I have allowed them to go on into uh, Delta trainings. 
And I can recall there was one magnificent woman uh, named Marina who uh, uh, did uh, nine consecutive days of Delta with me. She and I were both doing uh, Delta simultaneously. And she was contacted by a very high rank of angels who consistently and continuously are sending love to earth, but the frequency of their vibration is so high that most humans can't detect it. So she was asked to make a commitment, and she did make a commitment to spend one hour of every day while she was in a human body acting as a step-down transformer to step down this high vibration from this high rank of angels to a frequency that could be transmitted to and absorbed by human beings. And so we know that there are brainwave patterns that are associated with seeing angels. Everybody who's ever uh, come in with this pattern asking, do you see angels? They sometimes freak out. Like, how do you know? I've never told anybody. I go, well, I see it in your brainwave. And one of the most interesting stories about this was at one point I was invited to set up my technology on a secret army base where Green Berets uh, were being trained. And I had the great privilege of training two 12-man teams of U.S. Army Green Berets. And before I started their training, I gave them each a uh, 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 set of baselines. You know them, the eyes open, baseline, eyes closed, mm-hmm. baseline, and the white noise. Then I sent them away, looked at the data, and brought them back for a half-hour interview each. Well, one, only one of the 24, had what I call angel pattern. And so I'm sitting across the desk from this big Hulk, you know, skinhead killer dude. And uh, I'm looking at the numbers. I'm looking at him. And I go, like, how am I going to ask? <laughs> how am I going to put this into words? So finally, I just, I said, okay, do you talk to beings that other people don't see? <laughs> and he like went back in his chair, like almost tipped over. He's hyperventilating, having a panic attack. Like, like, did anybody hear that? How do you know? I go, well, I see it in your numbers. He goes, how do you know? And I go, well, I see it in your numbers, your brainwave. He said, well, I've only told my best buddy on pain of death if he would ever tell anybody. But he said, when I'm doing my martial arts training, there's this little old Asian man that shows up and he coaches me and nobody else can see him. So this stuff is real. We at BioCyberNaut know the mystical side of brainwave training. A lot of the others are just wanting to reduce anxiety or, you know, treat this or that condition, which, of course, they can do. Mm-hmm. But this is also flatter and you can ascend into the high ranks of heaven. Uh, by doing the appropriate ethical cleansing. And there's 24 levels of the alpha in which you can do this ascent. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, you look at the website and you guys are sharing the info on the IQ and the creativity and a lot of the sort of practical sides of it. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, was not expecting to learn what I learned about brainwaves and what that, you know, has potential for. It really shifted my whole paradigm on what I knew to be possible or what I knew to be you know, I guess real for lack of a better word, like you're just saying, and you know, the, the angel pattern was something that was very interesting. And it just sounds like from the stories you've been sharing as well, there's a lot of people that are experiencing this and they're keeping it to themselves more often than not, but it is happening regularly. And uh, I just thought that was so interesting. And, you know, you talked about alpha being, you know, in, in the alpha brainwaves, we have access to all of our own personal memories and experiences um, from our lifetime. And, you know, going into the chambers where we're working with these alpha waves and, and in alpha, you can recover that. Right. And then in theta, um, it's more of access to the Akashic records, which is 
you know, everything that has ever happened and existed. And, you know, that's when I'm talking to people and I start losing them, I think a little bit. And then, you know, when you talk about the, the Delta brainwaves, the, the clearest metaphor seems to be the force from Star Wars in terms of, you know, the extraordinary powers that exactly. may be associated yeah. with it and the sort of fine line between them tilting good or bad and why it's so important that you have that sort of standard of purity well, before you teach anyone. May the force be with you, or that's Delta, what we're talking about. These aren't the droids you're looking for. Uh, move along, move along. Mm. Uh, Obi-Wan is there using Delta waves. Yeah, and that, and then that was really interesting when you were sharing about the Delta waves in our training. And yeah, just those different things that those brainwaves allow opportunity to interact with and work with just was unbelievable. And you had like so many stories and, you know, the scientific data to back it up and show it. And it was really interesting to see the, when you were talking about the Kundalini rising sort of experience and that burst of energy, which, you know, I've heard about uh, listening to Joe Dispenza and what people, you know, some of his work sounds similar into, in terms of what you're teaching people and what he's teaching people. And then obviously Kundalini is a practice Mm -hmm of yoga that's around creating this sort of energy, which can, you know, influence and inspire spontaneous healing and, and all sorts of sort of mystical experiences. But, you know, I wonder, is that something that can be trained through the the work that you're doing, or is there some part of it that is just naturally intrinsic into some people and what their abilities are? Well, um, Anyone you train to play the violin or the clarinet or a baseball, I mean, there'll be differences in uh, aptitude, uh, but you can provide minimum level of training to everyone. And uh, the, the, the possibility of doing uh, delta work is very profound because then you become like a, a sculptor, sculpting your reality out of uh, intentions and uh, desire and expectations and merging. And so uh, there are many The uh, philosopher Lao Tzu said, in dreams, begin reality. Hmm. Now, we can interpret that as probably theta, but in fact, uh, I think it's, it's more like delta. Now, most neurologists are unaware that there's any conscious activity in beta. There have been studies, like with college students, where they'll put a tape recorder under their bed playing lessons, uh, and uh, they can absorb material when they're asleep. But if the machine is programmed to only play uh, a lesson when they are in Delta, there's absolutely no learning. And so most people associate Delta with coma or the two deepest stages of sleep, stage three and four. And they're completely unaware of the superconscious state of delta that occurs when the kundalini is rising. Uh, I made the first scientific discovery of the brainwaves kundalini in 1980. And people have their first ever kundalini experience in my chamber. This was Bill Harris, the technology. Bill Harris passed a couple years ago. Uh, but when he came for his alpha training in March of uh, five. Um, on his sixth day, he had his first ever Kundalini awakening. And of course, the polygraph was awash with this magnificent, very high amplitude, very slow delta. And uh, at the time, he had a global network of a quarter million people. And for some years, 
he freely uh, promoted the Biosabinod training, sending emails out to his supporters saying, if you're at all serious about your spiritual development, you'll get yourself to Biosabinod. And uh, he never asked anything for this other than that we give his followers a 20% discount. And so we have had people have their very first Kundalini awakening in the Biosabinod chambers. And others, I, I've, I've spoken with over 150 Kundalini yoga teachers, and not one of them had ever had a Kundalini experience. So there's a body of practice called Kundalini yoga, which may in some people lead to a Kundalini experience, but this was 150 Kundalini yoga teachers, and none of them had ever had a Kundalini experience. We have a much better hit rate than that at class ever now. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was very interesting. So kind of taking another step back to some of the core, you know, pieces of the practice and the the process, forgiveness and gratitude. Um, you know, that's a huge part of what you work with when you're in the chamber and what is shared in the integration sessions afterwards. So mm-hmm. I'm curious to know a little bit more about these two sort of, you know, experiences and what's what's happening inside of ourselves when we're going into forgiveness and gratitude. Oh, well, uh, they're different. Um, There's so many stories I could tell you about that. Let me start with uh, George Gallup. You know who George Gallup is, right? I don't. Of the Gallup poll. Uh, You've heard of the Gallup poll? No. Yes, no? Oh, well, that's the most famous poll in America, the Gallup poll, G-A-L-L-O-P, George Gallup. Well, um, when Sir John Templeton of the Templeton Foundation was alive, Uh, Sir John was very interested in forgiveness. And in fact, he put out uh, RFPs uh, uh, to get proposals, which they then funded for people to do studies on uh, forgiveness. At one time, I submitted two grant proposals. One of them made it into second review, but we never got funding from the Templeton Foundation. But uh, Sir George um, uh, would, uh, or sorry, Sir John, Sir John Templeton, would periodically uh, persuade his friend George Gallup to do another poll on forgiveness. And so this happened kind of regularly. And I had the privilege one time of reading all the details. And so uh, among the questions were, uh, George Gallup asked Americans, how important do you consider forgiveness? Zero is not at all, one's a little, two moderately, three is quite a bit, and four is extremely. Well, 80% of Americans said they considered forgiveness extremely important that's a huge number for americans to agree on okay so now taking just the people who knew it was extremely important gallup asked them a follow-up question was are you able to do it and a full 85 percent said no (laughs) and that they went through the things that didn't work prayer didn't help asking god for help and trying to do it themselves none of this worked there was only one thing that emerged from the Gallup poll as being related to effective forgiveness. And that one thing was meditative prayer, not prayer. It had to be meditative prayer. And so when you put the adverb meditative in front of any verb, like meditative gardening, meditative fishing, meditative walking, meditative, whatever, what I see are more alpha waves. Hmm. If you're doing meditative gardening or, you know, Uh, meditative cat petting or, you know, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. more alpha waves. And so, by the way, when cats are purring, they're making more alpha waves. That's an interesting, you know, Mm -hmm. on human form of alpha. Cows, when they're being milked, 
uh, make more alpha. Human females find nursing to be mildly erotic. So, you know, when the cows are being milked, they make more alpha waves. Contented cows. I think Borden had this model for while contented cows make better milk. So the idea is that when you are in a condition of meditative prayer, forgiveness will work. At other times, it won't work. Don't even bother. Uh, you can write, I forgive you a hundred times on the blackboard. You can say it as a mantra, but if you're not in a rising alpha state, you're wasting your time hmm. and your brain. And so, uh, in a sense, George Gallup has confirmed uh, our method of having people only do forgiveness when their alpha is rising, when the scores are green or blue or green and blue. And so, uh, we've set up the protocol in such a way that people only work on forgiving when they're in the right state, which is rising alpha waves. Mm. Now, uh, gratitude. Um, there are many positive and esoteric uh, things that I could say about the nature of gratitude. Uh, and probably the simplest thing to say is that when you are in the experience of gratitude, you have more alpha waves. Your blood pressure will normalize. Uh, your whole uh, autonomic nervous system will come into harmony and uh, you'll just feel better. And so uh, forgiveness followed by gratitude, as you know, in the protocol, after you uh, do the, you know, making the charge and deciding to forgive and going into feeling the pain so strongly that you connect to it, your alpha waves drop, your scores turn white. Then you walk in the person's shoes which is an enormously powerful way. It's almost like doing an inquiry to understand mm-hmm. how to the situation. And when you can make that shift, you come out of your own hurt and your own ego, which is, I'm going to get that son of a gun. And you go into the other person's perspective and you transcend your own limited uh, awareness and your, and your own hurt. And then the forgiveness process goes to the point where you want to feel compassion for that person. Uh, you want to hug that person. Uh, and you want to feel love for that person. And as you do this, your alpha goes up and up and up. Now, when you get, when you run out of, you know, things to forgive and your alpha drops a little, your scores turn white, then you go to your judges. Judges either send you back to do more forgiveness or they approve. And then you do what we call basking. Now, in the basking, one of the things to do is, you know, say, I love you and say your name. And uh, it's also really beneficial to go into the experience of gratitude. I am so grateful that I've been able to let go of this hurt that's been weighing me down for fill in the number of years. And uh, so I can be free and I can uh, forgiveness you do for your benefit, not for the other person. Uh, one time for a year, I had a satellite uh, training center in Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, center of the uh, Ku Klux Klan. And I had a woman in training who was a multiple personality. Uh, She had experienced such horrific abuse uh, at the hands of her father, who was the leader of a local Ku Klux Klan group, that she had fractionated into 12 different personalities, some of the male. And when the abuse was coming, the girl personalities would run back and hide and the boy personalities would come forth and handle the abuse. And so when she was 15, the boy personalities ganged up and made her run away from home. And she stayed with relatives. Her father would find out where she was and would send threatening letters. You have to come back and serve the clan. And, uh, you know, she would be terrified. Uh, and I didn't know all of this. I mean, she was in such bad shape that she could only come to the training while accompanied by her lady psychologist who did the training with her. 
And so she couldn't be trusted out, you know, in the world by herself. And so um, on, it was the morning of day three when she was getting her electrodes on when this story about the abuse by her father, Ku Klux Klan leader, uh, came up. And I said to her, well, you'll need to forgive your father. Well, she exploded out of her chair, screaming and yelling and hollering, turned beet red, the blood pressure is off the charts, and she, she was pumping cortisol and adrenaline, harmful poisonous chemicals into her blood. And she was hollering so much that I couldn't get a word in edgewise. Well, at one point, she'd hollered out all her air. So she had to stop hollering and take a big breath like. <sighs> and during that time, I said quickly, well, I didn't say you should tell him. And one of the personalities thought that was funny and giggled. So now I had somebody to talk to who wasn't screaming. And I said, yeah, don't tell him. You're not forgiving him for him. If you told him you're forgiven, he'd probably laugh and, you know, find that ridiculous. So don't tell him. You're forgiving him for your own benefit. Look at you. Blood pressure off the charts, cortisol, adrenaline coursing through your blood hours before it clears. And why? Because of your negative reactions to him. Well, forgiveness will allow you not to have those negative reactions. Doesn't make right what he does. Forgiveness is not about sanctifying or making okay what the person did to you or what they failed to do that they promised to do. It's about taking out the pain from your own heart. So you're not at, and also by doing this, you cut the buttons. So when ego comes and tries to push these buttons, you don't, ah, you know, go into some reaction. You're now an independent operator and you can make wise decisions instead of reacting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So forgiveness is all about healing your own reactions to whatever happened. The person could be dead. Mm -hmm. Don't have to tell them you're forgiving them. Yeah, it really is about yourself. And in the process, there's a lot of self-forgiveness, at least in my, in my experience. Um, (laughs) Did you do inner child work? Did you forgive younger versions of yourself? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well done. That was a big part of it. You know, we spend so much time generally in our society trying not to feel things. And I listened to something recently that Tara Brock, the meditation teacher, was, you know, sharing, okay, you're going to like, as you go into this meditation, you're going to feel better. And the student went in and, you know, as they began meditating and getting into this practice, these emotions and pain were coming up and they're like, well, I don't feel better, but you know, she's like, no, you're going to be feeling better, feeling your emotions better. <laughs> and oh, feeling more accurately. <laughs> yeah. Which I thought was very, very interesting and very true, you know, and, and part of this process is feeling into the pain and getting yes. more objective awareness around the pain, you know, to sort mm-hmm. of start this process. And I wonder why is it important to, be able to have awareness and feel the pain as a part of this process. Well, in business, they say, what you can't measure, you can't manage. And so if you can take the measure of your own pain or your own anger, then you can manage it. Mm-hmm. Uh, like many people say, well, isn't it healthy to express your anger? And I say, no, expressing your anger only gives you practice in being angry and hurts the people around you. Anger is a form of public littering, and I strongly discourage it. However, I strongly encourage experiencing your anger. So when anger comes up, this iliasm perspective, third person, oh, there he is or there she is feeling anger. Oh, look at that's more intense anger than he or she felt previously. Wow. Look at him or her experiencing this anger. And that way the anger has, uh, has been, you're not suppressing it. You're not bottling it up. It's not turning toxic. It's being able to come up 
but it doesn't go out and get on anybody. It's just dissolved by your awareness. Awareness is in and of itself healing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. You know, it's just good to hear and, and have it spelled out. So, um, you know, another huge part of this process for myself and I think everyone else that was in the training with me and probably just about everyone walking around on the earth is learning to bring awareness to our ego and mm -hmm. all the different ways that it is hindering us and uh, sabotaging our, you know, growth and experience. And that's not a new thing to me on some levels, you know, having done a few years of, you know, spiritual work and uncovering what's going on. But I just, you know, this process and working with you and um, understanding, it helped me understand it a lot more. I, it brought a mm -hmm. lot more awareness and clarity to my ego and, and the ways that it has been, you know, wreaking havoc yes. <laughs> and uh, keeping me attached to suffering in my life. So I was, you know, hoping maybe you could share your perspective on the ego after these years of exploring and, you know, there's very few things that it is good for, but maybe you can share your thoughts on that and sort of, you know, the key ways that it, it sort of holds us back in, in life. Well, first of all, I want to acknowledge you for a very beautiful way of answering, uh, asking that question. To, to talk about it in such a refined way uh, indicates uh, the profound level of your own understanding that you now have of your ego. So uh, let me say let me say several things. I consider the ego to be the internal ambassador of the devil, or for non-theological people, I call it the internal ambassador, of the external gray darkness, the dark side of the force is expressed in humans through egos. Now Ramdas said that as long as you have a body, you will have an ego, and or however it can be big and obtrusive and get on people and sabotage you moment by moment, or it can be subtle and evanescent and rarely in evidence. And I'll tell a story about one example of that latter, uh, where an ego was subtle, evanescent, and rarely in evidence. Uh, at one point, you know, Tibetan Buddhism for uh, centuries has been a mystery religion, uh, and the uh, details uh, were not to be revealed. Uh, however, when the Chinese captured the Pathet Lama, the counterpart to the Dalai Lama, and they're needed to like co-consecrate each other, and took him off to Beijing under house arrest with his mother and installed a, an imposter uh, who will appoint and consecrate the successor to the Dalai Lama when the current Dalai Lama dies. When this happened, the Dalai Lama realized, oops, it's curtains for Tibetan Buddhism. Buddhism. Let's make it more open. And so he instructed his followers to be more open. So there was an 80-year-old lama close to the Dalai Lama who consented to have his brainwaves measured uh, at a laboratory, brainwave laboratory. I think it was in Dharamsala. And, uh, well, so he's, you know, there's doctors and the white coats and technicians and polygraph equipment, pens writing on paper. And he's in his uh, chamber. It's not feedback. He's just meditating and having his brainwaves measured. Well, he came up upon, while he was doing that, one of the major attainment levels in Tibetan Buddhism. There's over 150 levels, attainment levels. Some of them are large. Some of them are huge. 
uh, and some of them are, you know, not as big. Well, he came up on one of the very major attainment levels. Well, his brainwaves went absolutely off the charts. The pens on the polygraph are throwing ink everywhere, trying to write, record these huge waves. And the technicians are going, oh, my God, we've never seen anything. Like They're calling the doctor, quick, come and look at this. And the doctors are going, oh, my God, I've never seen anything like this. Now, in the state, he's totally telepathic. He's in the chamber. And his ego, which probably hadn't been seen in 40 years, woke up and guess what? Took pride in the fact that the doctors had cognized him as an object of significant scientific interest. And it was like it took marbles and threw it under his feet, and he tripped and fell and failed to make it across this major attainment level. Now, the good news is that he stayed awake for most of the next two years meditating and got back to that level and was able to cross over. But that's an example of somebody like an 80-year-old Lama next to the Dalai Lama and, uh, you know, very saintly. Very, and then he has an opportunity where the ego, which hasn't been seen in 40 years, to come out and sabotage his attainment. And in most people, it's, you know, more obvious. And so... Uh, I look at it as a narcissistic sub-personality. I know that it has an independent consciousness. And let me say this. Uh, in the writings that I have seen of people around the world, uh, there are probably two other people beside myself who have or have had this level of understanding of ego. One is Eckhart Tolle, and the other is Dr. David Hawkins, who used to live here in Sedona. Uh, I unfortunately never met him. I went to his first birthday celebration after his death and got to, you know, be in the presence of his ashes and met his wife. But Eckhart Tolle, uh, Dr. David Hawkins, and yours truly have probably the most accurate and thorough uh, understanding of ego. I personally have had tens of thousands of interviews with people based on the computerized mood scales, which can detect the unconscious positive emotions and unconscious negative emotions, and then how people deal with that. And in 2006, I ran across a little book called The Zen Ox Herding Stories, which were a distillation of over a thousand years of Zen practice in Japan, which uh, was a distillation of the hindrances, the five hindrances that the ego uses to block spiritual progress, doubt, drowsiness, distractibility, and worry, aversion in any form of ill will and boredom. And I started using these. It was extremely helpful to my alpha and theta feedback trainees, because these are the mechanisms that ego uses to subvert and to sabotage and to undermine and to control you. Hmm. Now, the way after using it for about a year, I began to realize that there was another hindrance, which the ego was using, which was not listed in the five hindrances from Zen. And that was forgetfulness. So, for the next roughly two years, every single training that I led, I would ask when I introduced the hindrances, usually on day three, I would say, now, how is it that those brilliant, insightful Zen guys missed forgetfulness? It's so obvious that the ego is using it against us. And so that state of not knowing continued until December of 2008, when I was leading a training at my new training center in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. And I had in it the man in that training, there were five people. One of them was the man who became the scholarship sponsor that subsequently put up $6 million for scholarships for people from his company and also the over 200 Canadian Aboriginals. And so when I asked the question, how is it that the Zen guys missed forgetfulness? 
He gave me a one-word answer that just immediately silenced me with awe. He said, Mercury. That's why they missed forgetfulness as hindrance. Mercury. Now, what tumbled into my mind was a whole lot of facts. Before the widespread burning of coal, which only goes back 200 years, there was no mercury contamination of the environment. What does mercury cause in the human brain? Destruction, actually disintegration of neurons and forgetfulness. Everybody remembers the Mad Hatter in Alice in Wonderland. Well, it was known all the way back in Elizabethan England that hatters went mad. After a couple of years of working as a hatter, you <laughs> crazy mad just like the Mad Hatter and Alice in Wonderland. Now, why? Because the chemicals that they used to stiffen the felt of hat brims was loaded with mercury. They would absorb it through their hands and they would go cuckoo. And of course, they would be forgetful. And so 200 years back, no mercury contamination in the environment. And so there was no forgetfulness in those Zen monks. Mm -hmm. Now, this is an enormous amount about the ego because... It tells us the ego is an opportunistic predator. If people have minds that work like steel traps and forgetfulness is not a part of their being because their brain is not contaminated with mercury, then they don't have forgetfulness. And so the ego couldn't use it. And so the Zen guys only came up with doubt, drowsiness, distractibility, and worry, aversion, any form of ill will, and boredom. Forgetfulness was not on the list, but now everybody has mercury contamination in the brain and Forgetfulness is available to the ego. So it tells us the ego is an opportunistic predator, which gives us more insight into how it functions. It's not a remotely programmed kind of thing. It's a living, sentient being. Now, why do I say sentient being? Well, all sentient beings want to have the continuity of their consciousness. Now, you can look at a, a, a four-year-old who's been told he has to take a nap, throwing a temper tantrum because he's having so much fun or she's having so much fun playing that he or she doesn't want to go down for a nap. Don't want to interrupt the consciousness. Well, uh, when people go unconscious, there is an interruption of uh, the control of the ego. And so the idea that the ego doesn't want you to have an interruption of its control of you, well, I'll tell you a story. Uh, when I was still back in California, I had a super athlete in training. Now, most super athletes are very buff men, and they wear clothing three sizes too small to emphasize bulges in their muscles. Well, this guy was the exact opposite. He wore clothes that would be more suitable to a muscle woman. It's like a tent. Uh, and, and you only could tell, like, if he bent over, you could see the obliques. He was totally buffed. Uh, but he wore, you know, very uh, like tent-like clothing. So you think, okay, well, maybe he's not so egoic. Well, when he came out of the chamber on day three, he was angry at me. And he yelled at me. He said, your technology made a hole in my consciousness. And I go, well, what kind of a hole? I don't know. It was a hole in my consciousness, and your technology did it to me. So I tried another approach. I said, well, what's the last thing you remember before you went into this hole in your consciousness? I don't know. It was a hole in my consciousness, and your technology did it to me. So I tried yet another approach. I said, okay, well, when you came out of this hole in your consciousness, what's the first thing you remembered? And he started to yell, and then he goes, oh, well, what I heard was loud tones rapidly decreasing. And I go, hmm. So in this 
hole in your consciousness, you had big alpha that was making loud feedback tones. He goes, yeah, I guess you're right. And then he started to remember other not quite so deep holes in his consciousness. And so he had had moments of absolute transcendence where he abandoned, he left behind thought. Now, the Buddha said, enlightenment is the space between any two mind moments. Thought, like everything else, is quantized. So if you're going from thought to thought to thought, and you fall in between this thought and the one that was to follow, you are in that moment in a state of enlightenment. Well, this ego responded to that with all this anger, because when he was in that state of enlightenment, the ego could not control him. Mm. So it was an interruption of the ego's control of that being, of that consciousness. And the ego went into a rage and he's yelling at me, your technology made a hole in my consciousness. But he realized those were actually moments of transcendence. Yeah, that's so interesting. That's not a story that you shared during my week in Sedona, but that's super interesting to hear because I feel like, you know, I'm trying to get forget those holes and and make them bigger and that last longer. But my ego is has created a couple of ways specifically to, you know, paper, paper over them as much as possible and like chronically. So it's, that makes a lot of sense. Definitely resonates. Well, that's why it's so important. The stuff that you experience can come up and not be papered over with forgetfulness mm-hmm. by the ego. Yeah. Yeah. So what is the ego trying to do? Control, control, control. Control for the sake of control. The ego would rather have you die than get free of its control. Ego es no mi amigo. One of our trainees made up a t-shirt. Ego es <laughs> no mi amigo. <laughs> yeah, so when we're trying to get more in touch with our truer selves and experience our potential, those are all things the ego is ra- railing against, really. Opposing, and with all, all methods at hand, which include the now six hindrances. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in re- in regular life, obviously in our in the training, you know, a lot of this work is overcoming that. In regular life, how do you sort of encourage or propose people take steps to marginalize and disintegrate the ego to the smallest amount we can? Well, uh as you know, um from the teachings, forgiveness is aided by walking in the other person's shoes. Okay, so if you can do that, you can come out of the I thought because Mm. it loves and lives in the I thought. And when you can abandon the I, you temporarily cut the bonds, release the surly bonds that ego has upon your consciousness, your being. And so uh, did we talk about the wisdom study? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. Okay. Wisdom is, of course, extremely highly prized in all human cultures, uh, and it's very hard to attain. Most people would say, well, you have to have a lot of life experience before you develop wisdom. Well, there was a group of psychologists who came up with a, a lengthy interview process that would measure wisdom. And so they gave this interview to many, many people measuring their current wisdom. Then they divided them into two groups. And they instructed them to journal every day. Now, you've heard many people talk about the benefits of journaling. Like, you know, I got up and then I had this thought and then I ate this and I went to the store. This happened to me and I had this reaction. And so at the end of the day, everyone was uh, required uh, as a part of being in the study. They were required to journal. 
Well, half of the people journaled in the way I described. The other half were asked to journal from the third person, Iliasm. So he got up and he had this for breakfast and he went to the store and he had this experience and, and so on. Or she got up and she had this for breakfast and then she went to the store and she had this happen to her. And they're both journaling. At the end of some months, they were re-administered the lengthy and detailed wisdom interview. In spite of the alleged benefits of ordinary journaling, there was no change in wisdom in the people that had done the, I did this, and I thought this, and this happened to me. And Whereas the ones who had journaled in the third person, Iliasm, they had big increases in their wisdom. And so one of the things that everybody can do uh, at home or at work or in the car is when something happens to you, take the perspective of a third person. Oh, this just, somebody just cut in front of him or somebody just said something rude to her. And now this has the benefit of beginning to establish in you the perspective of the witness, which mm -hmm. is one of the powerful meditation techniques where the witness, when Ram Dass talked about it, he goes, the witness merely notes. It doesn't judge. It doesn't take sides. It doesn't have opinions. It merely notes. Oh, there's this person who's trying to become a yogi is standing in front of the refrigerator and drinking root beer. Well, root beer is not a part of the yogi trip. And so, you know, you're just, and this happened to Ram Dass. And he's drinking the root beer and he goes, well, I shouldn't be doing this. Well, but it tastes so good. You know? And so uh, developing the witness is a part of uh, practicing Iliasm. Now, Iliasm has been known all the way back to 58 BC. We have some speeches of Julius Caesar, the Roman Empire, who referred to himself in the third person. And uh, it, spiritual leaders also refer to themselves in the third person. It diminishes the power of the I in which ego lives and resides mm -hmm. and works to do its dirty work against you and your growth and your progress. And so one thing that everyone can do is to immediately begin to think about themselves in the third person and maybe even do that journaling at the end of the day. Even if you just do it for two or three minutes, note down a few things that happened to him or things that she thought. It can be very, very helpful. Yeah, I really like that example. It's that the objective awareness that really shifts the experience. And actually, I had something just in the last few weeks with my fiance. You know, she would say something about me running the water too long. And previously, I would, you know, be so attached to that as like me not being good enough. And now mm -hmm. with this more objective awareness, I, I'm not taking it personally. You know, the ego is not like, taking that on board as this attack and that I'm threatened and it's not safe to, you know, do anything out in the world in a sense. And, you know, it's, <laughs> it's that witness perspective that, you know, without judgment that makes such a big difference. So, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's, um, you know, it's obviously going on within ourselves individually all the time, but, you know, I, I've been reading this book by somebody, Gary Weber, and it's very much about the idea of going beyond thought and beyond the mind. Mm -hmm. And so he, anytime he's writing, I are referring to himself, it's in a lowercase I, you know? Ooh, so in that example, you know, us as a cultural capitalizing, I, whenever we write it is again, reinforcing the ego in so many ways that we don't even realize. Very wise. Yes. Like that. Yeah. So just a couple more, you know, questions. And I don't know how this question is going to come out, but, you know, you're a doctor, you've been doing decades of research and 
um, studies and, uh, you know, it's super impressive. But one thing that I was really blown away by is you've seemingly been just as passionate about learning about all sorts of mysticism, um, spiritual techniques, pursuits, Buddhism, you know, teachings of Ramdas. You studied with people practicing magic for uh, <laughs> lack of better word myself. Um, you know, you've paralleled this scientific pursuit with this deeply, deeply spiritual pursuit. And, you know, in the BioCybernaut, you've really brought them together in a really interesting and unique way that's maybe not so evident from just looking at the website or something like that. But I well, wonder... We, we, we hide that until yeah. people are ready to... <laughs> Makes sense. I understand why. And But I thought, I, I, you know, I was just like so impressed by you know, yourself and what you've brought by combining these two practices that are, you know, generally in our society kept very separate, it seems like. So, you know, I was just wondering if you could share a little bit of your journey in terms of that spiritual journey and the different sort of schools that you've learned from and, and how that is, um, you know, helped you develop the science in a unique way. Well, spirituality and science are the twin pillars of our culture. And for going all the way back to the beginnings of science, when Rene Descartes famously said, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, implications if you're not thinking, you don't even exist, following then the development of the scientific method. Uh, since then, uh, spirituality and science have been at war in our culture, tearing us apart. And so you have adherence of one or adherence of the other, and, you know, they spit at each other and sometimes worse. And so they are the twin pillars of our culture. And so let's embrace both. Now, there is a simple and powerful unifying principle, which we've actually trademarked here at BioCybernet, and that is brainwaves rule. Brainwaves rule. Brainwaves rule your thoughts, your feelings, your experiences. You cannot have the experience of the color blue unless you have the brainwaves for blue in your occipital lobes at the back of your head. And so anything that changes your brainwaves is going to affect your um, consciousness. This could be prayer. It could be meditation. It could be sex. It could be um, Sufi dancing. It could be shamanic drumming. It could be taking uh, drugs, uh, plant medicines, uh, chanting. Um, breathing exercises, anything that works, works only because it changes your brainwaves. And so given this fundamental scientific fact, we can put all spiritual experiences into the, well, almost all spiritual experiences in the context of brainwaves. For example, the superconscious state in yoga is called samadhi. Superconscious state in Zen is called Satori, and both of these are characterized by super high alpha all over the head. Now, there are major differences. For example, um, the Zen differences between Zen and yoga philosophy can entirely be derived by looking at the differences in the way their alpha waves in Samadhi and Satori respond to external stimulation. In yoga, they say, oh, everything in phenomenal reality is maya. It's illusion. The only real reality is within. Whereas in Zen, they attempt to have one foot in the phenomenal world and one foot in the mystical world. Well, how does that show up in the brainwaves? Remember, both Samadhi and yoga and Satori and Zen are characterized by super high alpha all over the head, but there are differences. If you take a yogi in Samadhi 
and you take a pair of cymbals and you clash them together right by his ear, the alpha is unbroken. It, it's like you didn't even do it. You can take a hot poker, red hot in the fire, and put it on the yogi's arm. The flesh is burning. The smoke is curling up. These have been actually done in India. And the alpha is unbroken. Or uh, you can, in fact, uh, then take that yogi's arm and put it in a bucket of ice water called cold pressure stress. Most people can maybe take half, uh, 15, no, five minutes of that before they're like, ah, too painful. Well, 30 minutes later, the yogi's alpha is just unbroken. So it really is that this world in which the body is, is an illusion. And he's absorbed or she is absorbed in a higher reality. And what's going on here in 3D reality doesn't even matter. Okay, it doesn't affect the brainwaves. Okay, now what, what's the difference in Zen? You take a Zen monk sitting at the Tori, huge alpha wave, and instead of a symbol, big clashing symbol, you take a tiny little tinkle bell and you go tinkle, tinkle by the ear, and the alpha blocks. It goes away. No, then it comes back. So you take the little tinkle bell and go tinkle, tinkle, and the alpha blocks again, and then comes back. Now, with an ordinary person, like if we did this for you, if you were sitting there and we were measuring your brainwaves and we did a tinkle, tinkle by your ear, after five or six times, the brain would go, oh, it's that little bell again. It's not interesting. It's not dangerous. And your alpha wouldn't block. You habituate. But the thousandth time you ring the little tinkle bell by the Zen monk's ear, the alpha will block. It's like the British poet, the English poet, William Blake, he said, when the doors of perception are cleansed, everything appears to man as it is, namely infinite. So the thousandth tinkle of the little bell is absolutely fresh and new. And so mm. the difference in the brainwave state and in the response to physical reality in the yogic, as in India, superconscious state of samadhi and the zen superconscious state in japan completely can describe the difference in zen and yoga cultures you know when i studied yogis in india they would be absolutely blissful in high states of consciousness and yet be covered by lice mm. i had to it was like i won't tell you some of the stories they're pretty <laughs> uh, one i will tell you okay uh, i have a suite in the Oberoi hotel in bombay my equipment is set up there. It's owned by the king of Nepal. And so I bring in this, this yogi, and I'm, you know, he's got a lot of dandruff, but that's okay. And I'm like putting electrodes on, and I notice he's got a big open wound on his head. And so I go to my bathroom and get iodine, and I'm putting it. Well, the iodine fumes disturbed a large beetle that was feeding at the edge of the <laughs> wound, and it ran off through his hair. Then I look more closely at the dandruff, and each piece of dandruff had six legs. And so we had to, like, you know, do the procedure for him and his assistant and all of the staff because the camera crew were all affected. So uh, in Japan, the bullet trains run on time. They have these enormous clean rooms where they can, with the perfection of technology, grow these giant silicon wafers, very high purity, and uh, dominate the world semiconductor market. And so the difference in the importance of the perfection of the physical form of reality is an integral part of Zen. And it's not at all a part of yoga because this is Maya and doesn't matter. What matters is the internal world. And so the brainwaves rule, you can predict how Indian culture will function based on their superconscious state. And you can predict how Japanese culture will function by analysis of their superconscious state. So brainwaves rule. 
And so this integrates science and spirituality because the only way you can have samadhi experience or kundalini experience is by having the appropriate pattern of brainwaves. And there's a lot of ways you can induce them. Some of them, like Zen in Japan, take 21 to 40 years of extremely arduous practice. And when I, point, when I trained a Zen master, Ruho Yamada Roshi, at, at the end of his training, he said, in broken English, he goes, Biosab are not better than having own Zen master. And I go, Ruho, how can you say that? You're a Zen master. He says, look, you have Zen master, master busy. Have many students. You sit, you meditate, you have attainment. Master busy, not notice. Next day, master, see you. See you different. Master, give you feedback. One eyebrow, go up a little. At Biosabernod, feedback all the time. Biosabernod, better than having own Zen master. Plus, he went further. He said, uh, Zen, as it's practiced in Japan, ruins thousands of lives. The practice is so fierce and so disciplined that people basically have to give up being a human being in order to try to attain this perfection. And he said, for everyone that reaches attainment of uh, Satori, there's thousands of lives that are ruined. Well, that's not the case of Biosabernod. Mm-hmm. Get your benefits in a week. Get the same brainwave changes as are seen in advance and in a week. Now, can you go beyond that? Yes. Remember, there's hundred over 150 attainment levels in Tibetan Buddhism. That's why we have 24 levels of the Alpha training and 24 levels of the Theta training and 18 levels of the by invitation only delta training. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's great perspective. So the last thing I wanted to touch on with you, which I thought was super interesting, and again, sort of crosses between science and spirituality is this idea of time. And you shared an experience early mm-hmm. on in your own sort of exploration as an individual that you spent three days meditating on time and then trying to see how you can cut yourself off from time. So I wonder, you know, if you can share that experience, but also how time can sort of muddy the waters in our experience as these beings. Well, the famous Zen master, Suzuki Roshi, who actually brought in the 60s, uh, Ruho Yamada Roshi as a young monk, not a Roshi yet, to America, along with uh, Koben Roshi, who was the Zen master of the Jokoji Zen Center in Los Gatos, California. I had the opportunity to meet both of these. Uh, Suzuki Roshi said, time is the basis of fear. When you think about it, well, what are you afraid of? Well, I'm afraid that this might happen. Is it happening Mm now? No. Well, when will it happen? Well, at some time, that's not now. And so he said wisely, time is the basis of fear. Now, having brought up uh, Koben Roshi, uh, who was uh, uh, basically uh, monk brothers, Zen brothers, with uh, Ruho when they were both young monks in San Francisco in the 1960s when Suzuki Roshi was setting up the San Francisco Zen Center. Um, after Ruho Yamada Roshi had done the alpha training with me in the Shockley building where I was, that's the building in which Uh, Dr. Shockley launched the information processing revolution by inventing the silicon transistor there. We were launching the consciousness processing revolution in that same building. So he trained there with me and Ruho was blind, uh, blind Zen master. And uh, so I would have to sit in the chamber with him and read the mood scale words. So I would position his hand over the numeric keypad and then I would read the word, he would push the button. And when the scores come up, 
uh, I would sit in a, in a beanbag chair in a corner of the room and I would read the scores to him. So that was how he was able to, to do the training. And at one point I asked him, I said, Ruho, what is it you don't want to see? And uh, he actually almost shed a tear. And then he said, all the suffering in the world. And so later, uh, he uh, spent time with Kobin Roshi, who was his, uh, uh, his monk brother when they were first brought to America. Uh, Ruha at this time had 150 students, a big uh, uh, Zen temple in Japan, and he came to the U.S. for this training. But he spent time talking in Japanese to Kobin Roshi about his experience. And so I was invited then to Kobin Roshi's home. And so it's Ruho Yamada Roshi, Kobin Roshi, and Ryan Brandenburg, who was the head of an organization of Buddhist organizations on the West Coast. And Kobin Roshi had invited me to dinner at his home because he wanted to make the following proposal. Uh, we were trying to get Steve Jobs, who was uh, a very close friend of Kobin Roshi, and who said that he would buy Kobin Roshi a home anywhere in the world, any price, no object. Uh, Kobin Roshi was trying to convert that promise into buying uh, the uh, Gilroy Hot Springs which was, you know, about a couple hours south of San Francisco. And it contained the oldest Shinto shrine in America and had hot springs in the, around the turn of the 18th, 19th century. It was very popular. People from San Francisco would go down on trains and vacation there for the weekend. And so we wanted Steve Jobs to buy that. And Coben Roshi actually walked the proposal into Steve Jobs' kitchen. He had a key to Steve Jobs' kitchen in Palo Alto. Well, Steve didn't understand and eventually, you know, uh, said, well, he didn't think that our projections were accurate. And he said no. But while he was considering it, Coben Roshi asked me to his home and said, um, I would like to be a biosavernaut trainer. And he said, if you would require me to give up my title as Roshi, as Zen master, in order to be a biosavernaut trainer, I would be willing to give up my title of Zen master. If you would allow me to be a trainer, I, Ryan Brandenburg just about fell off his chair to hear something like that. And I was, oh, I was effusive. Like, oh, no, Kobin Roshi, you would do me and Biosimonaut an immense honor for you to come and be a trainer as a Zen master. What Kobin Roshi particularly wanted to do was work with people who were dying. And so to have them do the Biosimonaut training as they were in the process of exiting the body. Now, um, a, Steve uh, Jobs didn't fund the purchase of the uh, Gilroy Hot Springs. And uh, the next year, Coben Roshi was vacationing in Switzerland with his family. And one of his daughters was swimming in a very cold Swiss lake and started to drown. And uh, Coben Roshi jumped in to save her and it became a double drowning. And so, you know, that uh, didn't happen. But the idea that you could have incredibly powerful beings seeing the value of the biosavernaut training and wanting to be involved as trainers was an extraordinary period uh, in in my work. Uh, and I am you know, regretful that uh, uh, Coben Roshi wasn't able to achieve his goal of becoming a, a biosavernaut trainer. Mm -hmm. Now, I know part of it, so could you re-ask that question and I'll, <laughs> I'll go... It was about your relationship to time and your experience of uh, trying to release yourself from its grips, I guess. As you know, I was very uh, dedicated to Ram Dass. 
whenever he would come into the San Francisco Bay Area and be on KPFA FM in Berkeley uh, all night long, I would be there. I would call in. I would talk to him, ask questions. At one point, I attended a week-long meditation retreat that was led by Ramdas. So we had the opportunity to relate uh, back and forth. And in um, 2006, when Reverend Michael Beckwith came for his training, uh, we spoke about Ramdas, and he had Ramdas's cell phone number. And so, from the training center, he called Ramdas. We spoke again, and I said, "Ramdas, this was after he had a stroke." I said, "Ramdas, I want to offer you a free training. You've done so much to help me in my personal growth and development of my awareness, and I know that doing this training will help you in your recovery from your stroke." And he said, "If there were a biosignature center on Maui, I would be there tomorrow." But he said, right now, I'm just not up for traveling. And so uh, I, I would listen to Ramdas tapes over and over and over and over and again. Uh, at one point, he said, if you want to live high, you have to live outside of time. Now, to give you an idea how many times I would listen to these tapes, um, in one session, KPFA, uh, I recorded it on a three-hour reel-to-reel. And so I, would, I was scoring EEG records for artifacts. Uh, you know, it took me 120 hours per person and I had 20 people to do. And so I'm playing these tapes over and over and over. And somebody called in and said, you know, you always talk about your guru, but you've never mentioned his name. Would you be willing to say his name? And Ramda said, yes, of course. And he starts talking. And he talked and talked and talked and never heard the name of the guru. But haha, I had it on tape. So uh, I rewound the tape and I played it again. Same conversation. Would you mind telling me your girl? Yes, of course. And he talks and talks. And I didn't hear. Not until the 10th time that I played that tape did I hear him say it was clear as day. My guru's name is Neem Karoli Baba. And so he would layer information in these tapes that you could not hear unless you were ready for it. Mm-hmm. This guy had actually called And of course, I'm like, you know, what, what, what's, it, what's the name? And it took me 10 playings of that tape recording before I heard the name. So I took very, very seriously everything that Ramda said. If you want to live high, you have to live outside of time. I was 26 at the time. I was living in an apartment on Noe Street. And so I took three days in my gym clothes, sitting in the middle of the carpeted living room floor with this big imaginary samurai sword, thinking of all the ways that I might be connected to time. And when I would find one, I would slash the cords that connected me to time. And I did this for three long consecutive days. At the end of that, I've had psychic readings and say, Jim, your nature is out of timelessness. And so at Biosign, we celebrate birthdays, but I I make the cake and uh, we put one candle in the middle and because it's the first year of the rest of your life. And so uh, uh, birthdays are, you know, wonderful blessings. Uh, but we don't count them because that converts to time. Uh, we've done everything we can to remove time consciousness from people here. Most of the building where the trainees are has no windows. Uh, there's a, a window in the door in the kitchen. But uh, in the rooms where the trainees go, there are no windows. And that's, uh, you know, it, it used to be our building used to be the San Francisco, um, it used to be the Sedona Public Library. And when Drunvalo Melchizedek and I bought it in 2011, we formed a company called the Library of Consciousness to buy and own the building. 
And uh, a year ago, uh, December 30th, Drundlow had asked me to buy him out. So we bought him out. So now we have Biosabernon occupies uh, the whole building and operates it through the Library of Consciousness. It's very important to be outside of time. And uh, we make uh, every effort uh, to do that. And for the most part, it's uh, successful. We confiscate watches and cell phones when people come into the building. And at the end of the day, or well into the night, wherever it is, we return their watches and cell phones. And when they reconnect to time, whatever that time is, we add 11 hours and that's when we start the next day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I think it was very interesting. And I like that idea as well. You know, it feels like in our normal lives, we are so attached to time, this happening in a certain time or that happening in a certain time, or I want, you know, said result by a certain time. And it takes us out of that present moment um, far too well, often. At, at one point, and this was when I was still back in California, I did a little sort of uh, thumbnail uh, study of who had the most difficulty in learning alpha. And the, cat- the employment category that had the most difficulty were commodities day traders for whom the only reality is time and money. And to yeah. let go of that, which they cultivate, time and money, uh, uh, was harder for them than, say, somebody who was an artist or a CEO of a billion-dollar company or a musician or a golfer. Commodities day traders had the most difficulty getting into alpha. Yeah, that makes sense. And it makes sense then when you talk about alpha and being that sort of flow state, because that's when time and things like that really disappear. So I imagine, you know, as an individual, whoever is out there, be it playing music or sports or anything like that, that you can immerse yourself in when time melts away is going to be a way to generate more alpha. You're in the zone. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. (laughs) All right. Well, I think we can leave it there for now. I have a bunch more questions, but maybe we'll have to. We may continue if you wish. You ask really insightful questions. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Okay. Well, you know what? Let's, I'll ask a few more. Might as well. I mean, I I feel like fortunate to have you on the call. So thank you. Um, In my own experience, you know, and I've gone and done a Vipassana meditation retreat or a plant medicine retreat or or then coming to the biocybernaut where there's this sort of intense situation where you're sort of outside of time, like we were just talking about, and you're getting all these insights and there's, you know, so much clarity around my true self, my heart, my emotions, the ego, these different things. Um, You know, it feels like, okay, well now I have all this like, you know, objective awareness. I'm not going to go back to my old ways. And then as we sort of go back to our normal lives, the integration process can be quite challenging and the ego will really, for me anyways, dig its heels in uh, wherever it can to sort of pull me back into those lower states of, of being. So I wonder sort of what your perspective is on that and how we can overcome that and integrate as positively and efficiently as possible coming back into our daily lives. Wonderful question. And um, it's uh, something that I've been uh, working on, thinking about, uh, for a very long time. Um, the first groups of people that I trained were college students. And, of course, you know, at the end of the semester, they're gone. Maybe they graduate. You know, I never see them again. Um, and so um, 
what I found was in the federal grant, uh, or one of the, it was clear that people from all walks of life were having profound benefits. Uh, the differences between their personality tests before and after, like a week apart, were astounding. And I can give you an example of how astounding. The granddaddy of uh, personality tests is called the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, MMPI for short. And it's like mother's milk for psychiatrists. And so when I was first at UCSF doing uh, trainings in Joe Camus' lab, I was administering a battery of personality tests, including the MMPI before and after the training. And so when I won, I was an assistant research psychologist after I got my PhD. Then when I won my large federal grant, I was elevated to an assistant professor of medical psychology in the August psychiatry department. So now I'm the youngest, newest professor in the department of psychiatry. And uh, shortly after that, the professor decreed the annual faculty retreat, you know, like a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. Well, the chairman decreed that there would be an annual uh, faculty retreat. So, and each faculty member would have to stand up on stage in front of the entire faculty and talk 10 minutes about the research. So I figured, well, what I'll do is I'll make slides of the MMPI profile from before and after the training. Now, the MMPI profile uh, includes the eight clinical scales, which is depression and paranoia and schizophrenia and psychasthenia and mania and social introversion and Welsh anxiety and hypochondriasis and masculinity, femininity. And there are three life scales. The test is very sophisticated. It can detect faking good or faking bad or just generally not telling the truth. And some of the scales are adjusted up or down based on the life scales. So it's a very sophisticated test. And it was standardized in 1945 on 10,000 Americans. So it's like, it's a little dated. Like one of the questions is, I like playing drop the handkerchief, yes or no. Well, a lot of people today don't know what that child's game is, drop the handkerchief. And so, uh, as I said, it's a little dated, but it's reliable in measuring these dimensions of psychopathology. So for my talk, I'm showing slides of somebody on day one and then on day seven, or maybe day eight. And I'm only halfway through my talk when two senior bearded members of the department are jumped up out of their seat, they're shaking their fists, waving their fingers, and very, very angry. Now, you know from the emotional hierarchy, this, if they're expressing anger, that means they're afraid. That's the emotion above anger. Just like anger is above sadness and depression, which is above apathy. And so I was literally shouted off the stage. Talk about academic freedom. They were terrified that this young whippersnapper, this newest, youngest member of their department, was going to disrupt their august profession. And well, yes, if you can achieve better results with seven days of brainwave training, many of them are going to be afraid. Um, and I one time had a psychiatrist come to me. He said, you've trained a number of my patients, and you've done more for them in seven days than I've been able to do in 20 years, so I want to know what you're doing. And so you have this opportunity uh, to see what the work does and how powerful it is. And uh, I was in this environment where I was having results that were so profound that they were not just, uh, the, the people were not just incredulous, the psychiatrists were threatened by a person and a technology that could, have, could produce 
results like this. So in the federal grant, I wrote in six-month follow-ups and 12-month follow-ups. And so um, people, you know, did their training. Then they sent them off. Now, some of them would say, you know, remember, I couldn't talk to them, but I could listen to the exit interview. They'd say, oh, this was so wonderful. How can I keep this going? We couldn't even say, meditate. There was nothing that we could say because we wanted them to be virgin, have no guidance from us when we brought them back at six months to retest them. And so to our great astonishment, their personality profiles were better at six months after the training than they were on the day after the training. And of course, way better than they were before the training. And so while we're scratching our heads trying to figure out how this could be, another six months go by and we bring them back for their one-year follow-up. And there are further improvements in their personality profiles. And this is with us telling them nothing. Mm-hmm. And so to understand this, um, I created the following perspective. And it has to do with your perception of reality. Let's say that you're colorblind and all your life you were born that way. You just saw black and white and shades of gray. Well, then you had a miracle surgery. You went to Lourdes and had the sacred water put on your eyes. And now you see colors. And so for months, every flower, every sunset is going to be a showstopper, just immense beauty flooding into your brain. But it's also going to change the way you live. When you go to the supermarket, instead of buying a box of this and a can of that, you're going to be drawn by the colors of the fresh fruits and vegetables to buy and eat a healthier, more natural diet. And so your internal biochemistry is going to start to change. Or when you go to the closet to get dressed, instead of putting on garish colors that people kind of like, oh, that's kind of creepy person, you now dress yourself in a way that's color-coordinated. So your circle of friends and your associates and your opportunities for learning and growth and social experiences expands. And in this way, this one shift in your perception to include more accurate details of the visual input, now you have color, not just black and white and gray, this one shift in your awareness, your perception, is going to profoundly and ongoingly change the way you live. And that is what happens in the biocybernet training, because you perceive yourself and you perceive your ego in a far more accurate way, and you begin to make changes which transform you ongoingly. Now, if you go back to eating onions and garlic and smoking uh, tobacco and drinking alcohol, of course you can sabotage and undermine and abort this natural uh, process of growth and development. But if you're you know, a good boy or a good girl, and you observe some of these uh, precautions and you know, avoid the, the alpha blockers, uh, you will have ongoing growth. Now, what more can we do? How can we make it better? Well, uh, a couple of years ago, I brought in a, an experienced businessman to be my CEO. I had been CEO and chairman and chief cook and bottle washer and janitor, you know, myself. <laughs> now, uh, Doug Holt, our wonderful CEO, uh, has assembled an incredible team uh, to do outreach and marketing. And with their uh, incredible help, we were able to put on the Global Consciousness Summit 1.0. And in April, we'll probably do another one. So uh, some of the same speakers will be back. We'll be looking for more. We may do three days instead of two. And so uh, what we're working on is an aftercare program. Mm. We'll bring the same consciousness, love, appreciation, and gratitude to continuing to work with our graduates. Now, there is already a forum. It's called uh, the Graduates Forum on the Biosabinet website. It's the alumni group. 
And so if you have graduated from a biosabinon training, any one of them, you can join at no cost and be a member of the alumni group where you can interact with other people who are of high consciousness just like you are. And that can help to sustain and maintain your continued growth and evolution in your own awareness. Mm-hmm. Thank yeah, you for that wonderful question. Um, you touched on that emotional hierarchy, and that was something I hadn't sort of seen or been aware of before, but it was, was very helpful in the process, but has continued to be helpful afterwards mm-hmm. when emotions arise. So I wonder if you could quickly sort of share that and sort of how you might apply it or use it. Sure. Um, the emotional hierarchy, apathy is at the bottom. Above that is sadness and depression. Above that is anger. Above that is fear. And at the top is joy. And so the way it works is whatever emotion you are experiencing, it is being caused by uh, unawareness or suppression of the emotion one step above. Uh, I'll give you one example about apathy, which is on the bottom, and another one uh, about uh, anger. So uh, rarely do people lost in apathy come to the training. You have to, be, you have to do things. You have to take action. Uh, you have to you know, reach out. You have to talk to Kate. You have to schedule a training. You have to pay money. You have to make travel reservations. You actually have to travel, uh, increasingly you know, challenging in these uh, times. And so rarely do apathetic people show up in the training, except Sometimes an apathetic person will be brought by their husband or wife or their boyfriend or their girlfriend. And so the last time that happened here in Sedona, we had a couple and the guy was, uh, uh, the guy was apathetic. Uh, for the first two days, he's sitting there, you know, with his elbow on the table and I'd say something. and Yeah, so what? Who cares? And so really a wet blanket, just lost in apathy. On the morning of the third day, while we're putting electrodes on, he kind of sits up and he goes, a, a, a light comes into his eyes for the first time. He goes, I'm depressed. Your training is making me depressed. <laughs> and I jumped out of my chair and went, whoopee, because look at what's happened. You've come up out of apathy and now you're experiencing depression. So as you go further into the work, then you'll find that you're angry. And after that, you'll discover what you're afraid of. And then when you, in the safety of the chamber, explore into the direction of your greatest fears, you'll find that it's always your fastest growth path and takes you inexorably to joy, which is at the top of the emotional hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And so for somebody who's been, and he was lost in apathy for years, his girlfriend had no idea what to do with him. So she dragged him along to the biosabernet training and you know, woke him up, brought him out of this apathy. And another story has to do uh, with anger. I had a young athletic couple in training where um, they had gone helicopter skiing and the guy skied into a tree, knocked himself out. He's lying unconscious in the snow. And um, his wife, a little woman, beautiful young woman, she couldn't carry him. So she took off her little jacket and partially covered him. And then she skied out looking for help. Well, by the time the rescue helicopter came back, he was unconscious, uh, nearly dead, and with severe frostbite. Well, as soon as he could, you know, the paramedics, you know, they inject him with things and warm him up and whatever. Uh, As soon as he regained consciousness, he started angrily yelling at his beautiful wife who just saved his life. 
And nobody could figure out why they'd been to psychologists and psychiatrists and marriage counselors, and nobody could figure out why he's so angrily yelling, all the time yelling at this beautiful young woman who loves him and saved his life. So they found their way to BioCyberNet. And so uh, the training was just them. There were no other people. And he's sitting across the table from me, and he's yelling. And so I'm just absolute yelling. And just like that uh, multiple personality woman in North Carolina who yelled so much that she lost, you know, she had to like stop yelling in order to take a big breath. He had yelled at his wife so much that he had to like stop yelling to go. <sighs> so he could take another run at the yelling. And while he was taking this big breath, I pointed my finger at him and I shouted, what are you afraid of? And he trembles like this. Why did I say fear? Well, because it's the level above anger. He's expressing anger. So I know there's got to be fear there. So I yell, what are you afraid of? And he trembles. He stops yelling. And he starts to cry. Tears pouring down. His wife comes over and she's hugging him and patting his shoulder. And so what do you know about near-death experiences? Yeah, that you sort of can be in this place of bliss and oneness. Yes. And typically the way it starts is a tunnel opens and you start being drawn by, down this tunnel, floating down this tunnel by an invisible current and it's getting brighter and lighter and you feel more and more bliss and you start meeting up with deceased relatives. And, and so that had happened to him and he was on his way out. He was going down the tunnel and then the paramedics pulled him back and the fear, I said, I yelled, what are you afraid of? The fear was that he would never experience that incredible bliss again. So I said, oh, my God, that's an easy fear to deal with. The next time you die, that same tunnel will open. <laughs> you don't have to worry. You don't have to be afraid. That experience is waiting for you any time you die. And so, but meanwhile, you have this beautiful young wife, and she loves you, and you love her. So why not, you know, and enjoy your life together? And then when you die, that tunnel will open again, and you know, nothing to be afraid of. And so that hierarchy, simple, apathy, sadness and depression, anger, fear and joy, has solved so many problems for so many people, just knowing that. And I want to credit it. Um, that emotional hierarchy, I have no idea where it came from. Other people have different emotional hierarchies. But that emotional hierarchy, so helpful in doing this personal growth work, was given to me by Deborah Dooley. She was a private practice psychologist in Palo Alto, California. And when Foster Gamble and I had our uh, big, fabulous 12,000 square foot purple carpets, you know, training center there, Deborah Dooley came in as one of the trainees. She was a, a client and uh, she loved the training so much. She asked to be a trainer. So I trained her as a trainer and she explained it. And she said to me, she said, you know, Jim, I'm not that really good a therapist but I do miracles for people because I know this hierarchy. And so I have found it to be incredibly valuable. And this is the first time in decades that I've had the opportunity to give credit to Deborah Dooley for bringing that emotional hierarchy to me. As I said, I have no idea where it came from, but it's powerfully effective. And so you know, that's a wonderful story. Hi, Deborah. I hope you're doing great. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm grateful for her and for you because it, it has been very practical and useful to, you know, understand, you know, to have the awareness to be like, okay, I'm feeling sad or depressed or I'm feeling angry. And then, you know, further question, where is this coming from? What am I afraid of or whatever it is? And I've already, you know, been able to learn things about myself 
in the last couple of weeks just by using that simple tool. Well, I'll um, share a personal sure. with you related to that. Um, you may know or may not that I'm just back from um, We have a long list of people there uh, registered for training. We're booked solid uh, out until March, and, you know, that's filling up too. <clears throat> and uh, so I made plans to go to Germany. And my uh, longest-serving loyal friend, uh, technician, Miguel Espinoza, he and I are also compadres because I'm the godfather of his youngest child. And so uh, he and I pretty much built the German center together. He brought his brother and a couple of cousins over, and we built it you know, from raw materials, soundproof chambers and everything. And so uh, I'm making plans to go to Germany. Now, in the background, there's all this stuff about COVID. And we know that uh, the Australian airline Qantas and the New Zealand airline, I think it's New Zealand Air, have both made a rule that you cannot get on one of their planes unless you have a vaccine. Well, there's no way that I would ever take this vaccine. The Pfizer vaccine, for example, uh, is known to cause women's bodies to develop antibodies to the placenta. And so this would lead to women not getting pregnant or maybe miscarriages uh, or spontaneous abortions because the fetus can't survive if the placenta is attacked. I've also seen a report that advising men who want to become fathers to save their sperm and freeze it because they may not be fertile after taking this vaccine. Also, the Pfizer vaccine contains a, a chemical, uh, a photoluminescent chemical derived from marine invertebrates, which under ultraviolet light glows green. So now why did they put a bioluminescent chemical in a vaccine? Well, I would think it's so that at some day when they want to separate the herd and send those that haven't taken the vaccine to FEMA camps, um, all they have to do is shine an ultraviolet light in your hand. And if you glow green, it proves you took the vaccine. If you don't go green, that's when you get arrested. And so I was also worried about not being able to fly back. Uh, and so, in fact, that fear was actually, uh, I was in Germany. It was the night of uh, January 1. And Her Holiness, Satya Saima Lakshmi Devi, uh, who has done the training uh, last year, mid-year, uh, came out of a 10-day silence retreat to phone me up and say that she could see on the inner planes that there was great danger if I did not get out of Germany immediately. So um, I, I had flown over there. Uh, on United and uh, gone through Zurich uh, and one of my employees over there picked me up. We drove through Austria and then uh, into Germany uh, and I actually led the Christmas training over there starting on the 26th of uh, December. Now that training had been interrupted by visits from the German police who wanted to shut us down. What we were doing was completely legal, but there was a neighbor who was complaining that we were operating and so two policemen came to the door uh, and told us we had to shut down. And I enveloped them in a field of love and gratitude and appreciation and communicated to them the urgent nature of this training. And they smiled and left. Two days later, two other German police officers came, a little more serious. And I enveloped them in a field of love and light appreciation and explained to them the importance of the training. And they smiled and left. Well, this is apparently not what 
German policemen typically do. So the next day, eight German policemen showed up at the door, four big policemen and four very strong police women, and they shot us down. They said they were empowered to uh, drag the people out of the chambers. And so, you know, I spread a little love and I said, well, you know, what we really need to do is properly shut down. And so we did. And the next day, the trainees left. We're working with a German lawyer to get our center reopened there. But Satya Saima uh, called me up, broke her 10-day silence retreat, which would have gone on longer, to warn me to get out of there. So that night, uh, December, rather January 1, the night of January 1, I called United, made reservations to fly the very next day from Zurich back to Washington, D.C., and then to uh, Phoenix. And when I got to the airport and checked in, the gate agent told me that I was lucky to be getting out because in just a couple of days, United was shutting down all flights from Zurich to anywhere in America. So the wisdom of Satya Saima in her inner you know, uh, world uh, saved me. But, okay, now to go back to how this thing with the fear uh, worked, I found myself in advance of going to Germany, being irritated with people on my team, people that I love. I mean, I run BioCyberNet kind of like a family. We're, we're one loving family. And uh, I was experiencing, no, I wasn't expressing this. This would be at night. But I would find myself running an inner dialogue of being angry at this person and that person. And I went, wait a minute. If I'm feeling anger, I must be afraid of something. And so I go, you know, that's the emotional hierarchy. So what am I afraid of? And I was afraid of going to Germany and either being trapped there, not able to fly back or uh, being forced to take a vaccine, which I consider dangerous. I consider it a depopulation tool. If women can't get pregnant, if it destroys placental cells, well, that's going to really, really reduce the population quickly. And so uh, I, I use the emotional hierarchy to go from the anger that I was experiencing, I didn't express it, I didn't yell at anybody, but I was experiencing anger. And then I go, okay, well, I must be afraid of something. And so this whole thing came out. And so that I was able to deal with it as the fear. And so I went to Germany with guidance and protection. And I also got out of there with guidance and protection. And so that's how I just use the emotional hierarchy myself. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, and it's interesting too how the, the uh, anger and the fear, well, like they're not related. And I imagine in most cases, like you'll be angry about something, it'll be showing up in that way, but the sort of suppressed emotion is not related to, to that and how you're acting out. And to be able to uncover that as like myself, you know, within myself is such a powerful tool and, you know, so much healthier for me and for everyone, all the relationships I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the, this last question is a little bit of a sidestep from that. You mentioned it really briefly before, but the sort of the Schumann frequency or Schumann coherence, I was wondering if you could share a little bit about that. Oh, that is so fun. Okay. Um, this is easier. I have a paper to draw on. Let me see if I have a clipboard here. Let me see if I draw something, if it uh, shows up. So I'll start by drawing uh, the Schumann resonance frequency. Can you see that? Uh, 7.83 hertz? Yes, 7.83 hertz. Very good. And maybe I have a, a black Sharpie here. It might actually be a little better. 
So let me go over it again. 7.83 hertz HZ, which stands for frequency. So that, can you see that a little better? Yeah. Okay, good. All right. So um, if you take, well, let me do this. Let's take a person. I'll make a little stick figure. And next to this person, I'll draw two organ pipes. So can you see that? Yeah. Okay. There's a little organ pipe and there's a big organ pipe. Well, what's the difference in the musical note that will come out of each pipe? Uh, I imagine the small one will be higher and the large one will be lower. Yeah, a deeper. Yeah, they call it. Deeper. You know, sure. Okay. Well, because the thing is, you can have standing waves, bigger standing waves that develop in the a bigger pipe, right. you know, long length or frequency. Uh, than in the small pipe. Okay, well, it turns out that if you take the Earth, there's an example of the Earth, mm -hmm. okay, and then you draw the bottom of the ionosphere, which is a layer of charged particles around the Earth, okay? Yeah. In between the surface of the Earth and the bottom of the ionosphere is a spherical organ pipe. And so I've crudely drawn a frequency that is resonant in that cavity. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that frequency turns out to be 7.83 hertz on average, which is the Schumann resonance frequency. Now, if there's a solar storm and the ionosphere is excited and it either expands or contracts, the size of the spherical cavity will change. And just as the size of an organ pipe, determines the frequency of the note, the resonance can frequency can go up or down. It's the frequency that is stable in that spherical shell uh, cavity. Okay, now what's particularly interesting is 7.83 is between alpha and theta. Theta is 4 to 7 and alpha is 8 to 13. Now, you remember, I told you earlier in our conversation that... Um, when I left the talk by Joe Camilla, I became an absolute library, uh, a rabid reader of everything I could find about brainwaves. And there were eventually after, you know, people began doing this work in the 20s and 30s and 40s, there began to be textbooks on brainwaves. And the textbooks would define delta waves are zero to four cycles per second. Theta waves are four to seven. Then there was a gap where there were no human brainwaves. Nobody observed brainwaves between seven and eight. They didn't make it into the textbooks. And then alpha was eight to 13 and beta was 13 to some people say 25, some people say 40 and above that is gamma. So there was a missing, there was a gap in human brainwaves between seven and eight. Now that is absolutely fascinating to me. Uh, I just kind of like took it as, oh, well, you know, that's just the way the brain is. None of the textbooks before about 1955 showed any human brainwaves between 7 and 8 hertz. Nowadays, that we have people, some more than others, who have brainwaves in that gap, 7 to 8. We call them Schumann brainwaves for mm -hmm. obvious reasons. And uh, it turns out that's the pulse of the planet. That's Mother Earth's pulse. And it may be coincidence, but the man I know and all the, you know, maybe 7,000 people who've done the training, the man I know who has the biggest Schumann uh, in his EEG record 
runs four different recycling companies in Poland. Hmm. His name is Janusz. And he's definitely doing Mother Earth friendly kind of work. And he's got big brainwaves in the gap that is normally not occupied by human brains. Okay, so that's fascinating. But then why might humans have evolved not to have brainwaves in that frequency? Well, remember, that's Mother Earth's frequency. So let's say, and I'm going to now draw on the surface. I'm going to make it. I'm going to draw an early hominid uh, on the plains of Africa. So I've circled it. It doesn't really fit. Can you see the the hominid? Yeah. Head, arms, legs. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this early hominid is walking across the savannas of Africa. Meanwhile, there's a lightning storm going on over the Nile Delta, which is injecting huge amounts of frequencies into the spherical cavity. And of course, the only ones that propagate any distance are the 7.83 hertz. And so if this hominid has a brain that operates on that frequency, when these huge waves come into his head, he might like bliss out, ah, 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 and miss the snap of a twig that would indicate the approach of a hyena or a leopard. And so his genes wouldn't make it into the next generation. Mm. And so this would be a mechanism to cull out of the human gene pool hominids whose brains operated on Mother Earth's frequency. And so that would be a frequency to avoid because Mm -hmm. if your brain works on that frequency, you're more likely to be eaten as you bliss out when a lightning storm thousands of miles away injects waves 7.83 travel and they cause you to bliss out. Mm. That's a theory. So, uh, well, what might have happened recently? Why do humans and why do the textbooks about the mid-50s stop reporting this gap? Well, that's another speculation. But that's about, at least in Western cultures, when TV into, infiltrated into just about all the homes. And so as people zombieize in front of the TV, their brains may be entrained this frequency so that they uh and there's not many lions or hyenas or leopards that are gonna jump on and eat people uh in wisconsin who uh happen to be zoning out when a lightning uh, storm you know over the nile delta injects schumann into this cavity and so that could explain one why the 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 genes for having schumann were extracted from the human gene pool and why in safer times, at least from uh, carnivores, safer, uh, and in the advent of television, which helped to zombieize people, um, could brainwaves could return. So anyway, that's, that's the, my, my current thinking on Schumann. That's interesting. So if, if one was sort of in that energy, in that frequency, would there be some potential deeper connection to Mother Earth, uh, sort of some Ooh. alignment then? Oh. <laughs> well, that's you know a conclusion possible from noting uh, Janusz, mm-hmm. these four big uh, Mother Earth-friendly recycling companies. And mm-hmm. so, uh, in fact, one time he was doing, I think he was doing his Alpha 2 training with me in my German center, and he said, uh, Jim, why is it that I can solve problems so much easier in the chamber than outside? 
And I go, well, Janusz, it's simple because in the chamber you have a bigger brain. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, well, when you're not in the chamber, all of your mental processing occurs in carbon-based circuitry inside the skull. When you're in the chamber, there's a whole lot of silicon circuitry that's interfaced by the electrodes. So you have your consciousness now has a hybrid platform, part carbon-based circuitry and part silicon-based circuitry. So when you're in a biosabinoid chamber, you have a much bigger brain. And of course, it's easier to solve problems. Mm. Yeah, that makes me think I need to go revisit all my notes and see what problems I'd solve that I've already forgotten about thanks to my ego. <laughs> Very wise. Yeah, <laughs> Very wise to do that. All right. Well, I'm going to leave it there for now. And I just want to say again, uh, thank you so much for your work, for your time. You know, I feel so lucky that uh, my path has crossed with yours and I got to experience Alpha One. And I'm sure I'll be back for more trainings in the future. Marvelous. You are so welcome. And I want to really congratulate you on profound and deep questions that are asked in a way that is evocative of much more information than if the question were asked in a different or shallow way. <laughs> well, thank you for saying that. I'm trying to not let my ego attach to that uh, <laughs> confirmation too much, but uh, thank you. Thank you again. You're most welcome. And thank you for being. <laughs>